Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I am your host, Tyler. And I am your supplementary host, Dax. <laughs> and in each episode, we tell a story about video game history and gaming culture. But before we get into that, Dax, how you doing, my man? Tyler, do you know those times when you feel like life is going okay, and all of a sudden it comes sideways and drop kicks you to the ground, and you're like... Mm-hmm. I should have seen this coming. Yes. My cat <laughs> stays outside for many days at a time and then comes back sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this morning I was like, this is a good day. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to water the lawn and have a good time. And my cat showed up mm-hmm. and half her face was swollen and red and she couldn't see. And she was making oh, no. very, very sad noises. And I was like, hey, cat, nice to see you. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and so you gotta know I, I i kind of have to do stuff during the day but and it was a public holiday so oh i can i kind of had to figure out how to find a vet mm-hmm. during a public holiday which was possible by driving an hour <laughs> so I, I spent and there was a huge traffic jam because it's a public holiday and people go on holidays. And sure. so I drove today for four hours <laughs> to, to, to get my kid kitten to the vet. And the vet was like, this is this face is swollen. We need antibiotics. And I was, I think so too, but you're the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how things have been. <laughs> Wow. That what a what a perfect little story that encapsulates your current life. <laughs> How is your life? How are you? <clears throat> well, um <laughs> your face. <laughs> well, first off, I hope that your cat's doing okay. She's sleeping, um, she's fine. Did they did they figure out like any idea of what happened to her? Or it was like... so weird. They like they gave her some mild anesthesia mm-hmm. and then they could like open up her eye and look inside of it and pull out stuff out of her eye like mm-hmm. red fleshy bits and look through them to find something stuck in there oh it was really disgusting yeah super gross. but they didn't find anything huh okay. yeah and then they just gave her antibiotics and gave me antibiotics to give her every three hours and now i do that okay huh how strange well What's up with me? Um, so I think since the last episode, uh, I can't talk too much about it, but I got a, I got what I've been calling a big boy job that will be happening later this year. And, um, I'm going to be very, very busy. Um, so I'm not sure what, uh, to those of you who are listening, I'm not sure what our release schedule is going to be like as we get increasingly busier and busier, but, uh, you know, we'll keep at it. Yes. Especially since our release schedule has been super reliable lately. Um, Yeah. It's been very consistent. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's beforehand excuse ourselves from maybe <laughs> getting a bit bad, a bit worse about our, our schedule. The problem is, as I, I will mention in this episode, is that some of these episodes you think, ah, oh, that'll be easy, no problem. And then suddenly it's not. And you're down this like massive multi-month research project trying to find all the things you need. And... Uh, you know, I think I think your take on um, episodes is like a little more like, well, just get it done, yeah. right? And I'm more like, no, I have to make sure that I did this correctly, and I have to have all the sources, and it has to be exactly what I want. And you know, that's that describes it well. Researcher and me coming out, or you're like, 
oh, tomorrow is a public holiday. I can finish my episode tomorrow. And then your cat shows up in the morning and you can't do shit. <laughs> well, see, we're already excusing ourselves from our, from our future releases. Yeah. Sorry. Docs can get out an episode. His other cat is swelled up like a balloon. <laughs> oh, boy. Docs could not... Uh, produce an episode due to cat inflation yes which is something you should never google okay don't <laughs> inflation. Um, so if one would like to contact us and complain about our update schedule how would one do that <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of ways you can get in touch with us um first off uh we have a twitter it's codex rex podcast you can also email us at codex rex podcast at gmail.com and i am on twitch a couple days a week and i am vegan tyler on twitch and you've reminded me that uh we got some fan mail recently <clears throat> thanks to the person say, who... don't say every time that enamel sent us fan mail it's always the same person <laughs> This time it wasn't enamel. Was it spam um, again? <laughs> no, no, it was not spam. Um, I mean, it did say the headline. the The header did say hate mail, uh, and this person was very nice, and they said um, that they listen to our podcast all the time, and uh, that their hate mail was that they hate how infrequently we <laughs> release episodes. <laughs> oh, that's so cool! Thank yeah, you for that email. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for reaching out to us. We always like to hear when people appreciate the stupidly large amount of work that we put into these. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> shall we get into it? Yes, let's go. Okay, cool. Boop boop boo, Here's where the opener goes. Boop boop boo. Here's where the opener goes. You're currently listening to the opener. Boxes phones ringing. Before we begin, I want to note that this is going to be a little bit of a review from previous episodes. So to those of you who have kept up with the podcast, over a year ago, I decided that I was going to do a series of episodes on some consoles released during a very specific period of time. And so every like five to ten years, a new generation of consoles comes out. And um, during that time, they typically all revolve around some kind of like new technology, some new like technological advancement. And a lot of companies will sort of um, jump onto this bandwagon at the same time and release consoles around the same time. So I decided to do a deep dive on what we would call the fifth generation of consoles, which started around 1993. And uh, during this episode, we're going to name drop a whole bunch of other consoles I talked about in previous episodes. But the biggest overlap comes with the PlayStation episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the creation of the N64. We're just going to get it out of the way immediately, because if you've been keeping up, you knew that this is what I'd be doing. And as I mentioned in that episode, Nintendo and Sony worked together on a bunch of stuff for a while, but I only covered Sony's side of things. And I said, when we do the N64 episode, I'm going to talk more about what they did, why they did it, that kind of stuff. So today I'm going to talk about some of Nintendo's choices and how they entered the console market a bit later than the rest. So It is um, fifth generation final episode, season finale. It is. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> God, it does feel like the end of a season, doesn't it? Yeah. 
So let's talk about a few people who will come up through uh, throughout the episode. First is someone that we have spoken about before. His name is Hiroshi Yamauchi. We ran into him in episode nine when I told the story of the Satellaview. He was the longtime president of Nintendo, a position which he inherited from his grandfather in the late 1940s. And this is long before they even made video games. He was known for being a very shrewd businessman and demanded respect from his company and others, but he, interestingly, did not play video games. He was once described as, quote, the most feared and respected man in the video game industry. So that kind of gives you an idea of him. Yeah, kind of spooky. Kind of spooky, right? Yeah. Uh, We're also going to talk about a guy named Howard Lincoln. He's come up a couple of times just in passing in the podcast. In the story, he is the chairman of Nintendo America for for most of the story. Uh, He has a long history of being in the games industry that is like way too much to get into. He got a bachelor's in political science and a law degree. He was in the U.S. Navy for a while, but then he got his foot in the door with Nintendo when he did some legal work for them. Um, There's a pretty famous court case involving Donkey Kong that he worked on, and uh, he's credited as maybe saving Nintendo from financial ruin back then. And so after this case, he joined up with Nintendo in 1983, and he is credited as one of the people that saved the North American game industry during the crash. So, like, guy's got a lot going on with him. Um, But he stayed with Nintendo, worked his way up. At the start of this story, he's going to be the chairman of Nintendo America, but then in 1994, he becomes the president of Nintendo America. And then lastly, we're just going to briefly talk about a guy named Ken Kutaragi. Uh, We talked about him in the PlayStation episode. He is often referred to as the father of the PlayStation. He's the guy who led the development on the console and really pushed for it. You know, like I said, we talked about him a bunch before. Kutaragi is one of my favorite characters that we have encountered. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, I'd like to sort of, someday I think I'd like to go back and really like finish out his story, but it was a bit too much for one episode. Wasn't it's he the dude the that just constantly was a double agent and, ne- and never only worked one side? <clears throat> so his thing is basically that he was just trying to get anybody to like, basically let him make a console. He was really pushing for Sony to join the console market. And it was that the president of Sony, um, uh, President Oga is his name, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, really like gave him the green light and sort of flew in the face of a lot, a lot of the old guard, um, kind of giving him the ability to to keep working on it. So, yeah. But yeah, so you'll, you'll you know I'll name drop a couple of other people, people we've heard in previous episodes, but um, those are kind of the big three that we'll that we'll touch on the most. Nice. Okay. <clears throat> For a long time, Nintendo had largely dominated the gaming industry. On the back of the Nintendo Entertainment System, which released in 1985, and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES or the SNES, uh, the SNES released in 1990, and Nintendo was the front runner in many markets. And to give you an idea of how powerful Nintendo was as a game company at the time, in 1988, they were sued by Tengen Incorporated, which was a publisher that Atari had created. And... They claimed in the lawsuit that Nintendo was so powerful that they were unfairly monopolizing the distribution of games in the United States. Now, uh, Tengen lost the suit, but I thought it was relevant to note just how entrenched and how powerful Nintendo was in this market at this time. In the midst of the fourth generation console war development of the next generation of consoles had begun. And Nintendo at this time had been competing with Sega, 
um, who had begun to dominate a large portion of the console market in the United States. And we talked about that in like all the way back in the first episode. And internally, Nintendo began to discuss their next steps. Atari was also competing with Nintendo's market share and had various systems on the market. Um, Sega had begun development on their later systems, and it was expected that they would continue to draw in new consumers as well. So what's Nintendo to do? So Nintendo already has the SNES out, and they decided that uh, rather than create a new system, that, that for now they would just expand on the, the SNES in a way that would upgrade its hardware. Okay, So like an add-on that would upgrade its hardware. And Nintendo um, was kind of known for doing this. They had previously released a console called the Family Computer Disk System. Very exciting, right? In 1986. And that console had an add-on that used floppy disks, because, you know, it was the 80s, uh, to enhance the storage capacity of the cartridges. And so they're like, well, we kind of just want to do that again. And so they look to Sega and Sega is like, we're using CDs now. We're going to put CDs on the Mega Drive or the Genesis, depending on where you lived in the world. And they're like, okay, well, like, you know, maybe we want to emulate something like that, right? Uh, you know, our competitors are doing this. Maybe we should upgrade our hardware too. And so they decide that they want to produce a CD add-on to the, the SNES. And uh, the first group that they look to is Sony. Now, they had previously contracted Sony to uh, work on the sound processor for the SNES, and they had a good working relationship. And the only real friction that I could find between the two companies back then, um, you know, just making the chip for the SNES was just that um, apparently Sony required all developers to use kind of like an expensive software to be able to like work with the sound chip, like some proprietary thing that they were creating. But like, other than that, like weird friction, the two companies really seemed to get along and, and it looked like they were going to have this partnership. Mm -hmm. So they draw up this contract and both companies begin working on the project. There, there's going to be a CD add-on to the SNES. Now, Sony was a pretty powerful company already and they were just dipping their toes into video games. And they had a lot of manufacturing power behind them. Their R&D was really good. And it was actually better than what Nintendo had access to. So at first, it seemed like this was going to be this really good deal. Like, Nintendo is this, like, massive powerhouse in the industry. And Sony could bring a lot of R&D and, like, technological prowess to bear. And they were going to make something really cool. So the initial agreement was that they would make a CD-ROM add-on to the SNES, as I said. But as the deal went on... Sony realizes that the terms of their deal, it gave them a lot of control basically just over CDs in general that had to do with the SNES. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to make their own console that could play SNES games. And in addition, it would be able to play you know, CDs that they called super discs because it was the 90s and everything was super extreme. Super extreme. <laughs> These are super discs. They're better than regular ones. Uh, and, uh, they were something that Sony would be producing themselves. And so what they were framing it as was that they were going to produce this entertainment system that could do all these things, right? Like music, movies, et cetera. And then in the top of it, you could plug in SNES cartridges. So it was like a all in one thing. And then the complications began because of course they did. 
There were hangups on uh, the PlayStation end of things internally, but we talked about that in the PlayStation episode. On Nintendo's side, they were starting to have some second thoughts. First, some were clinging to the cartridge format, and they didn't quite see the need for CDs. Further, regarding this new Super Disc format, Sony would have sole rights to every game made that would use the Super Disc. So basically how the contract had been drawn up was like, you could think of it to summarize, like anything cartridge Nintendo would do, anything CD Sony would do. And so Sony, you know, very large company, they have a music division, you know, that kind of thing. They had been pushing to have like all this music and these films licensed to these discs. And so whatever those films were, whatever the games were, whatever the music was, Sony would like 100% just benefit from those. You know, Nintendo's only getting royalties on cartridges. Sony's getting full royalties over the CDs. On the horizon, as we've talked about many, many times, CDs were very much looking to be the technology of the future. And this puts Sony in a much like better position for the deal. Can I, can I say one thing for a second? Yeah. Do you remember how big CDs were for like 10 years? Yes. And, and then just disappeared again. And now, like, I would buy, like, you would require a stack of, like, or two stacks of CDs next to your computer to burn all kinds of shit onto those. Yep. Because CDs were just the medium to go. And now you don't even have CD. You can't not even, like, if you get a CD, you're like, where does this go into? How? How I from the medieval times? What is this? It's, and it's yeah. like it's like it, it, it was the future, but now we we noticed it's just a transitionary uh, technology that it really was nobody needs. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Actually, uh, when I was cleaning out some stuff at my mother's, uh, I found a whole stack of CDs that I had saved stuff to, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm gonna take these." This is like a couple of years ago when I moved. And I was like, I'm going to take these with me and uh, I'm going to get all the stuff off of them and then I'll you know, throw them away because I don't need them anymore. They are still in the exact same stack that they always were. I have, I never got a CD drive. I never had a way to mess with them. They're still in the exact same stack because I'm like, nothing has a CD drive anymore. And everything that did that I owned that had a CD drive is all broken. Like, if it's on CD, it can't be that important because it's from the 90s <laughs> and things from the 90s are better forgotten. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, it would be, yeah, like late 90s, early 2000s is probably when I want to burn most of those. So, uh, Sometimes early 2000s is worse. So Sorry for interrupting yeah, you. I just true. wanted to talk about CDs for a second because I think it's very No, important. that's okay. Sometimes you have to interrupt me or I'll just go. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so Sony's going to be in like a better position for this deal. And as Stephen Kent put it, um, the problem was that Sony was proving to be a very dangerous partner. So... Nintendo, basically on top of the gaming market at this time, uh, was not really happy with giving up control in this arrangement, even though, you know, they had signed it. So also many within Nintendo were starting to worry uh, that Sony was going to use this deal as a way to break into the console market themselves. So like if they created this console with Nintendo's help, they would basically piggyback themselves on the success of the SNES and then catapult themselves into the into the console market, effectively becoming a competitor for Nintendo. And you know, some spoke of like, well, if that's their intent and they were really pushing that they wanted to enter the console market, should Nintendo be giving them access to their tech? 
and basically help them along should they create their own competitor. One idea that I have here is since Nintendo already got into monopoly trouble, that sometimes you have to create competitors to not be punished for getting too big of a market share. That's true. Which is what happened in other industries a lot, like Microsoft had to help Apple mm -hmm. to not be punished by the cartel laws that existed and would have been used against Microsoft. Right. So maybe that was a thought Nintendo had, just this is speculation, but that we have already started to get sued for this, and at some point this will turn into a real problem. Well, So maybe we should create a competitor that we have a good relationship to. I think that uh, that is ascribing uh, maybe a little bit more forethought to Nintendo in this situation yeah. than... Maybe it was just dudes sitting in the room being like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, so... I don't know. They seem like nice people. I well, I think that the thing yeah. was is that <laughs> it was supposed to be a mutually profitable thing for everybody, and that's why they did it. Uh, I Yeah. I don't think they did it because they really wanted to help Sony. I think they went with Sony because they thought that Sony, they had a good working relationship with Sony. They wanted to use Sony's expertise, right? Because right. Sony was uh, had, had a specialty in certain kinds of tech, um, electronic technology. You got it. So yeah, so the, the worry was, and, and I guess there were also other competitors in the market, right? Like, why are they doing this? They want to compete with Sega. Sega is sweeping the market. Atari was out there. And that initial lawsuit, like I said, Nintendo won oh, yeah. um, at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so President Yamauchi, uh, he, he starts doing a little bit more digging into the terms of this agreement. And when he finds out uh, what Sony would have control of, he decided that it was his responsibility to protect the current licensing structure of Nintendo at that time. Now, Nintendo had very, you know, um, traditionally kept a very, very tight control over their licensing, which is something that we will see throughout this episode. They were very concerned with only they got to make their games in the way that they wanted and nobody could pirate them and nobody could do anything with them, which is like, if I told you that that, you know, if I said that about them in 2022, you'd be like, okay, cool. That's it's what they yeah. still do. You, you can't make any fan videos of Nintendo things without getting into trouble with Nintendo. Yep. So yeah, they, they had this for a while. I mean, they still do, but it was, it was very tight control at that time. And basically, uh, Nintendo would force game developers to sign contracts that said that only Nintendo could both create and supply cartridges for their games. And Nintendo was able to like determine for you, the publisher, how many games would be produced at all. So coming from that level of control, where they can control every single aspect of game releases to one where they say Sony just has full reign to do whatever they want on, you know, the CD side of things that just did not work for Yamauchi. It was basically like, should we be giving Sony the ability to have control over what's released on our hardware? And so it was at this time that he decides uh, that he was just going to cancel plans for the whole thing. And as we know from the PlayStation episode, if you listen to that one, he was going to do it without telling Sony by revealing it in a way that would be very embarrassing to them. So real quick, yeah, I think it's important to talk about the why here. Like we touched on it a little bit. So for one, um, some have said that his reading of this contract made him angry, like it, like it legitimately angered him, and that he perceived it as like an insult 
from Sony. So in his mind, you repay an insult with an insult, right? Uh, if, if Sony was insulting them, that he, he was going to insult Sony as well. So, and yes, further, because we already know that, uh, the video game industry is kindergarten. So yeah, that makes total sense. Absolutely. In, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he insulted me, but I didn't actually even ask if he insulted me. I just inferred he insulted me and then I got really mad. <laughs> <laughs> I inherited this company from my grandfather. Okay. That was like 50 years ago. Do you know who I am? <laughs> my whole family works here. They'll fuck you up. That's how, that's how it went. Yes. Yeah, exactly yeah. how it went. <laughs> Thank you for the remake. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it. I found a direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, as I said further, he's like, okay, if I strike first, <laughs> can't unhear it now. Uh, if I strike first, uh, Sony was very much like a fledgling a fledgling you know video game company at this point uh they, they just hit their toes in and there was a like everybody knew there was a lot of pushback within sony to even doing this at all right like why would you make toys why would you do this thing this is a children's toy that you're that you're doing here mm -hmm. and so um <laughs> every time you go to laugh <laughs> I, I start laughing too <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get my cousins. <laughs> I'm gonna beat you up. <laughs> my cousin, he's real scrappy. <laughs> Just bludgeoning people with large contracts about Nintendo's superiority. Um, okay. Yeah. So he was going to defend this slight and hopefully knock Sony off balance, knocking them out of the market. I found a quote, too, from the book Game Over by David Sheff, um, a consultant in the industry at the time who wanted to remain anonymous, said this, quote, Sony had Nintendo by the balls. It was not a tenable position as far as Hiroshi Yamauchi was concerned. The Philips deal was meant to do two things at once. Give Nintendo back its stranglehold on software and gracefully fuck Sony. So you can imagine why that guy probably wanted yeah. to remain anonymous. Did they just go onto a college campus and ask random people? <laughs> <laughs> I had by the I'm gonna fucking gently. Hey Bert, Bert, what do you think about this? <laughs> yeah, bro. Sony was gonna crush their nuts, bro. It makes total sense that Sony screwed this up <laughs> if they hire friend boys. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so you know, um, yeah, yeah, he was probably right that like. Yeah. You know, Nintendo was getting screwed over here. Like, he's, he's not wrong. But the way he went about it, I think, is my problem. But we'll get to that in a second. So, so to enact his coup, Yamauchi gets in touch with the president of Nintendo America, uh, Minoru Arakawa, who was his son-in-law. Nepotism. Nice. I wasn't kidding when I said his whole family basically worked there. Uh, he also gets in touch with Howard Lincoln, who was the chairman of Nintendo America at the time. 
and he sends them both to Amsterdam. And their job is to negotiate a new contract with the company Philips, knowing that Philips was one of Sony's biggest rivals in the electronics industry. So uh, they worked out a new deal behind the scenes at like, you know, the 11th hour. And so this was like a snub. Uh, this was like a further snub. So not only were they going to go behind their back, but they were going to go to like one of their biggest rivals in the electronics industry and go with them instead to further humiliate them. And so where this all came to a head was the 1991 Consumer Electronics Show. It was leaked beforehand that this would occur. No. Would you like to know how it was leaked? But yeah, I want to know. Yeah. Someone just wrote someone just wrote about it in the paper. <laughs> they just wrote about it. And uh, you know, so people at Sony are sitting down and reading the paper and they're like, the fuck is this? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> someone said that out there somewhere <laughs> so it's like a conference like a conference room everybody but the boss read it and the, and, and the boss is talking about how they're going to expand how everything is going to go really well and everybody's staring at him and at one point he's like why are you staring at me what's going on what is your problem guys and then just someone pushes the news article to him and he's like what the actual fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is this shit? What the fuck is this shit? Oh my god! It's <laughs> just three hours of time leaving. Where he tries to not lose his and Ken Kutaragi and a whole bunch of other really pissed off people <laughs> try to call them both <laughs> Nintendo and Phillips, but Look nothing changes. In the office, everybody's scrambling. They're all trying to get someone on the phone. <laughs> Constantly <laughs> screaming. People are throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> all the interns are just like puking on the table. They're like, somebody get this rookie out of here. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so <laughs> on the first day of the show <laughs> sony continued on as planned okay they're like we're just going with what we got and they announced hey we're making this console and it's gonna play both snes cartridges and our own proprietary cds super discs and people went fucking nuts yay two major Japanese companies are working together to make video games. Holy fuck. It's crazy. And then the next day, Nintendo's presentation, Howard Lincoln steps on stage, tells everybody that they're abandoning their, their deal with Sony and that they're going to work with Philips. And the crowd is like totally stunned. The media is stunned. Sony is completely humiliated. The Japanese business world is in like total disbelief. Cause like, holy shit, why would you do that? And, uh, Everything was crazy. Wow. So Nintendo tries to spin their betrayal several ways. 
Howard Lincoln uh, was talking to a reporter and said that uh, it was for technical reasons that they made the switch, claiming, quote, our engineers reached the conclusion that from a technical standpoint, it was better for Nintendo to work with Philips. But even if that were true, uh, it just like doesn't excuse the way they went about it. Right. It was totally for humiliation for, you know, to humiliate them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, I have a fun side story that is unrelated to the main one. So uh, we, we've talked a little bit about um, the Consumer Electronics Show like multiple times on this podcast. It always comes up because that was where people would debut things. It is a long-running show in the United States that's been going since the 60s. And video games started showing up there. But then it became kind of clear that video games were outgrowing the show. Like they were becoming their own thing. And then it became clear that there was a need for a show that would be just for video games, which eventually became E3. Yeah. Now, granted, E3 is run by a separate group, but that's where everybody started going to because they, they outgrew the Consumer Electronics Show. And so I found a good quote on it by Tom Kalinske. Uh, he was the head of Sega of America at the time. We've talked about him a bunch. Quote, the CES organizers used to put the video game industry way, way in the back. In 1991, they put us in a tent and you had to walk past all the porn vendors to find us. That particular year, it was pouring rain and the rain leaked right over onto our new Genesis console. I was just furious with the way CES treated the video game industry and I felt like we were a more important industry than we were giving us credit for. Yeah, nothing changed. Nothing ever changes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just really liked the idea of like people coming to the show and like you get all the creepy guys going to the back and they're like, oh, yeah, is this where I get all that good electronic porn? Oh, give me some of that. And Tom Kalinsky's there and he's like, this is a Sega Genesis. And he's like, is there a bunch of good porn of that hedgehog? <laughs> There's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> that, that hedgehog has <laughs> did you are you referring to the thing i posted in the discord <laughs> okay I put, uh, side note <laughs> one of the developers of sonic said in an interview that Sonic would no longer be kissing humans in any video games. Just in case you guys were all wondering, you were waiting for your chance to kiss Sega's mascot. He's not, he's not making out with humans anymore. I'm sorry. Because after thinking about it for 30 years, we have come to the conclusion that bestiality is not family friendly. It took us a while, but now we understood this. So now we're not going to do that anymore. <sighs> I, you know, I'm going to let all the jokes I'm about to make go. There they go. Bye. Bye jokes. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> so back to the main story. Back to the main story. So we know that this betrayal, this, you know, this power play move, it didn't so much as hurt St Sony in the long run. Like it hurt them in the short term. But what it really did is it emboldened them to keep moving forward. So we know that Kutaragi went to Sony's president, Oga, and like pleaded with him and the board to continue the project. 
And bitter from their defeat and their humiliation, they just decided to gamble on on what Kudaragi was doing. And through that, Nintendo created their biggest rival. And who's to say what things would have looked like if they had continued working together? I, you know, I think Sony probably still would have entered the industry at some point. But now it was payback time. And so Nintendo's got this new massive corporation gunning for them. Mm-hmm. But Nintendo continues forward. At the Winter Consumer Electronics Show in January of 1992, Nintendo announced that they would be both manufacturing and producing the um, SNES CD drive within the next year. And then sometime later in 1992, Sony and Nintendo uh, decide that they're going to try and work out and salvage the deal. And they renegotiated the terms. And the idea was is that they would still move forward with this device and they would give Nintendo um, and that Nintendo would just get this like favorable profit margin for all the games. And but they would keep the chip that Kudaragi had made for the, the SNES. And so they're, you know, they're in talks. Nothing's finalized yet. And in the April 1992 edition of Nintendo Power, which is Nintendo's official magazine, they told consumers that the SNES CD drive was just around the corner. And they said that this device wouldn't just be a CD drive. It would also upgrade and enhance the SNES, giving it an additional 8 megabits of RAM. Woo! And the power to display full screen video. They mentioned some PC games in the article. Uh, it, they, it was like they were maybe sort of implying that they thought that like they were going to start porting PC games to this thing. Mm-hmm. More on that in a second. So they start looking for games that uh, might potentially work for this add-on. And there are some reports of them approaching game companies uh, as they were starting to prepare for this release. And uh, one company that they started working with had a game called The Seventh Guest, which was supposed to be this big deal. And Nintendo paid them a million dollars for the rights to it. Uh, Other companies that they started working with was um, Square had been a long time uh, partner with Nintendo and they were in on the new tech. They planned some games that would use it, including Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger. So Chrono Trigger was supposed to be an SNES CD thing. One of the developers of Chrono Trigger said, quote, we wanted to take full advantage of the space afforded by that media and make a game where you visit multiple worlds, end quote. Yeah, that's what Chrono Trigger is. One of, that's a really good game, dude. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I have not played the the re release of Chrono Cross yet, but man, I was so hyped when that. Did was you announced. know anything about what that seventh guest game was going to be? Um, like- yeah. So the seventh guest, it was like uh supposed to be like a haunted mansion kind of game. It was supposed to be kind of like this this like you go around and you solve puzzles. I don't want to say like Mist, uh, but sort of like Mist, if that makes sense. Like. More horror-oriented mist, I guess. A spooky adventure game. Yeah, spooky adventure game. Okay. Um, Now, with all that hype, the project was running into internal delays, but Nintendo publicly announced that the project would be ready by August of 1993. And as 1992 wore on, very little news came out about the add-on. But on October 14th of 1992, a day before Sega released the Sega CD in the United States, Sony and Nintendo jointly announced that they were going to be working together again with both companies collaborating with Philips to make the drive. They were all going to get together. They were all going to be one big, happy corporation family, and they were all going to kiss. 
And each of them were sitting in their corners, except for Phillips. Phillips is the stupid child that didn't know what was going on. But Nintendo <laughs> and Sony, both of them were like sitting in their corners, chuckling into their hands. <laughs> <laughs> this time. <laughs> this time we'll have all the money. <laughs> They're yeah. never going to see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> Why did Sony mend fences when Kudaragi very much wanted them to focus on their console? So why are they doing this side thing if they were working on the PlayStation? Some said that it was the old guard of Sony flexing their power. Why gamble on this new console when you could just work with Nintendo who is the clear leader of the industry and then just like coast on the royalty money, right? Like why do all this production and stuff when you can just have Nintendo basically pick up the tab and just make some money off of it. On February 1st of 1993, Nintendo held a press conference to update developers on the state of the drive. They showed off the fact that they had added in a 32-bit co-processor, and the SNES would have its one megabit of RAM supplemented by an additional 13 from the drive. They would also include something that they called the Hyper Advanced Nintendo Data Transfer System, or what they called hands. <laughs> we got hands. <laughs> It would supposedly uh, drastically reduce load times. Cool. And I guess someone who got a hold of the documents saw that the CDs were going to get shipped in this weird CD caddy thing. Because, like, imagine you have a CD and it goes inside of this, like, plastic outer case. And then in the case is a little security chip so that it wouldn't run without it. So that Nintendo would make sure that you couldn't pirate them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But as the year went on, Nintendo started quietly shutting down the project, and they never made announcements about it again. And part of this is because they started working on their next generation of consoles, and it just faded away. Poof. Gone. Some have said, given the way that this was all done, this might have just been a big ruse. So... Mending fences with Sony helped to fix the public perception of the previously bad deal. Plus, it kept money, uh, people from spending money on the Sega CD. It never released. And many of the games in development, including Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger, had to both be released on normal cartridges. Secret of Mana had a ton of content cut. <gasps> yeah. What? And they... Maybe they just didn't do anything and save the mm -hmm. money and made Sony do a lot of They very work. well could have. So they just burned Sony's money while sitting in the car. These people I find rather <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> but also cunning. And I respect yeah, them. I mean, really like like really know how to play the market, really know how to play the game, which makes sense, right? They were on top of the industry. So I get it. But also, man, sometimes I'd read these things and I'd be like, you sneaky sons of bitches. Yeah, this is like like aristocracy playing these <laughs> weird intrigue games. I don't know. It's really cool. Yeah. So Phillips 
later took the licenses that they had been given to make games for the CDI console. So, Docs, do you remember, you've probably seen them around the internet, uh, sometimes you've seen these really awkward-looking Legend of Zelda or Mario games that look like they were drawn in, like, MS Paint, and they're, like, really weird? Yeah. Okay, those came from the license that they had with Nintendo, that Philips had with Nintendo, and those are the games that they made with, like, the Legend of Zelda and the Mario licenses, attempting, attempting to, like, salvage <laughs> something from the deal. And apparently those games were so bad that they are thought of as one of the reasons why the CDI console tanked. But that's a story for another day. Mr. Phillips, Mr. <laughs> Phillips, we still have these licenses. Oh, uh, well, what can we do with them? We could make video games. Oh, I'll ask my cousin. He's going to make a video game out of this Zelda character. Oh, that is very clever, Mr. Phillips. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that Zelda guy. He's a cool dude. He's uh, He's got that green hat and stuff. I think we really play into that. Just uh, green hat Zelda guy. That's what we'll call a game. And we'll crank it out and people just eat that shit up. And here I am doing one of the three accents that Tyler can do. Just one of the three. Yes. <laughs> One of, the, one, of, one of your three Jersey accents, yes. <laughs> hey, I'm making games here. <laughs> no one ever said it was good. <laughs> okay, okay. So, okay. enter another company into this big miasma of corporations all trying to make a shit ton of money. And this company is called Silicon Graphics. We have previously mentioned them before on the podcast a couple of times. They're a pretty famous company. They were well-known within the industry. Basically, what they did is they made uh, high-end computer graphics, and uh, they would sell their workstations to Hollywood studios to make special effects. So, Wasn't Jurassic Park made with their machines and shit like yep. that? No. If you ever saw Jurassic Park, um, Terminator 2 is another famous one. Both of those movies used effects from Silicon Graphics workstations. Um, and so... Just about Terminator 2. People kind of, when that came out, were like really into the 3D graphics in Terminator 2. And I thought that they were shit from the beginning. <laughs> and I never understood how people liked that because it just looks terrible. Can you... But, I just imagine you sitting on the couch watching it. And I need <sighs> you to say, these graphics are shit really angrily in German. The graphics is scheiße. And See, it doesn't sound... It's, it's not... I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Crash Bandicoot, for example, for example, was made on Silicon Graphics Workstations. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they wanted to dip their toes into the video game market, and they had been working on developing new CPUs that were cheaper and more powerful. So in 1993, Silicon Graphics had started putting, putting together some hardware that they were calling the Reality Engine. Uh, for those who are tech savvy, it was using an MIPS R4300i CPU. First, as you might remember, they reached out to Sega with plans for making the console and spoke to Tom Kalinske, the head of Sega's US branch. Kalinske and Joe Miller, the VP of product development, were impressed with the hardware, and they decided that they were going to invite Silicon Graphics to fly to Sega Japan to show off the prototype. And uh, Silicon Graphics, they meet with Sega's engineers, they show them the tech, 
I guess at some point they talked about a deal and in the deal, Sega would get exclusivity over rights to this chip. And so after they spent some time with it, the story goes on that they found some early hardware problems and that Sega was less interested in the technology. Silicon Graphics claimed that they fixed the issues that Sega had presented, but by then Sega leadership had decided against the deal. So in light of this and how this matters to this story, is that Silicon Graphics turned toward their backup plan, Nintendo. So Jim Clark, who was the head of Silicon Graphics, met with President Yamauchi sometime in early 1993, and apparently Yamauchi was very impressed with the tech and jumped on it right away. Both parties drew up a contract and started working together. And now, of course, Nintendo denies that this story occurred in this way. They claim that Silicon Graphics chose them because they were willing to give Silicon Graphics a better deal, which is just that they would license the chip instead of keeping it exclusive. And maybe that's true. Regardless of however they spun it, Silicon Graphics ends up going with Nintendo. They have they kind of have a bad rap about lying. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So, internally, it would be called Project Reality. And they announced it at a Nintendo trade show that they used to run. Uh, the, the show was called Shoshinkai, the Shoshinkai trade show, which I guess roughly translates to something like beginning party or first visit. As a side note, it was later renamed Nintendo Space World, which is what I will call it through the, the rest of this. Anyway, at the show in August 1993, they talk about this console. And in the beginning, what it was is it was going to be tech that would be used in arcades and it would be released in 1994. Then after this big arcade release, they would release a console to home audiences in 1995. It would use a version of the Silicon Graphics Indigo workstations, which if you were to buy a Silicon Graphics uh, workstation, they were very expensive. Um, But the console at the time they had set to only cost $250. And they didn't give much in the way of specifics, but they did claim that the console would have a 64-bit processor. That number will come up a lot. Um, They also didn't talk about what the storage format would be. So the industry, as we've said many, many times, was pushing towards CDs. But they didn't commit to using CDs. Apparently, at the show, a spokesperson said, quote, it could be a cartridge system, a CD system, or both, or something not ever used before. So they're basically just like, it's going to be something, and I uh, guess you'll find out. I don't know, man. Classic Nintendo move. If, if, if we're going to yep. use CDs, we're going to make them really small and easy to lose. <laughs> <laughs> You see, if the kids lose them, then they got to buy more. (laughs) Every scratch is magnified when it's so tiny. (laughs) Look at it. It's so cute. Don't you want it? And then we'll put them in a big case. Big games on a small CD. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're talking about the GameCube, for those of you who have no idea what we're on about here. Okay. So, Nintendo was pretty good at playing um, the announcement game back in the day because they, they just wanted to constantly keep up hype, okay? And, uh, like, to give you an example, 
I saw a later ad for the N64 and it was just like a picture of the N64. Like we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it was just a picture of the N64 and it just said, you can't buy this console. And then it was this whole thing about how it wasn't out yet, but it was going to be so fucking cool and it was going to blow your mind so much that you should just wait, that you shouldn't spend your money on anything else. You should just save your money for when Nintendo came out because when the 64 came out, it was just going to be so good that you didn't need to spend your money on anything else. So just wait. So like they really played into this whole, like we are constantly announcing shit. We are constantly keeping you in our minds, even if we don't have a product to give you at this time. So, in March of 1994, they announced that they would be working with the developer Rare to make games. Uh, And the games were originally going to be for arcades. I think they were going to make a game called Killer Instinct. Uh, When we look back at the company Rare, they have made a ton of stuff that was really cool. Uh, And, you know, we'll get to maybe some of that a little later. But at first, people were like, okay, who is this company? Uh, I guess they made a game called... Battle Toads? Is that good? Like, should we be excited for Battle Toads? I'm not sure. Battle Toads is pretty good. Battle Toads is okay until you get to the weird segment in the middle that nobody can beat. Yep, yeah, I, I mean, but it's it looks nice and it's really hard, so I think that's <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Then in May of 1994, they announced that the game firm. DMA Design had signed up to make games. DMA. Astute listeners. How's that one go? That's it, yeah. The biggest question is, where is the money? So, as you might be catching on, astute listeners might remember that we talked about them in an episode Docs did about Lemmings and Grand Theft Auto. Um... At this point, they had made Lemmings, uh, and that was really about it. And then they threw their hat into it. Yeah, Nintendo really loved that. And um, but what Nintendo didn't understand is that they made Lemmings because they loved the murder part of the game, where you would shred the Lemmings or burn them or kill them in the weirdest ways, because that's how they came up with it. And Nintendo thought they they made the game to make a neat puzzle game, but that wasn't their intent. They mm-hmm. just wanted to make a really brutal game, and then they came up with an even more brutal game. And I think you're going to get was it, it th- Thrill Kill or something? I don't know, but it was about yeah. aliens wiping out the human race, and you have to stop them. And it's just a really cool shooter. That <laughs> is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that we'll I'll mention a little later is uh, that Docs is sort of touching on is that Nintendo very much wanted this system to be like aimed at like preteens and below. And so they had kept a very tight control over like the kind of stuff that they would publish on the console. So yeah, to bring in DMA design and then have them basically make like alien murder fest was like was was kind of antithetical to what they were working toward. That being said, they brought them in. It was kind of a thing at the time. Okay. Then just a few days later, Nintendo makes an announcement, maybe the most important one they'll make about this console. And they told the world that Project Reality would be using cartridges as their storage format for their games. This was a big departure for where the industry was going at the time as everyone was moving to CDs. And I think that we should spend a little bit of time on why they did this. According to Howard Lincoln, there were a few reasons. First, 
Uh, cartridges are faster in some ways. CDs have to be accessed by the console, which have to you know get the data and load it into the console's memory. And Nintendo felt that these wait times were detrimental to the experience of playing a game because all the cartridges, um, you know, they just came with ROM chips built into they them and users didn't have to wait. They are basically an uh, extended hardware that you just put into it and they have their own memory so you don't have to load it in. Exactly. So you have faster load times. Once you get to that. Oh, there are lots. Yeah. So first, um, <clears throat> you know, we can do some pros and cons here. So, so first, if they, uh, you know, if they stuck with cartridges, there's the speed thing that I mentioned, um, and how um, how console developers would typically get around load times is they would just do it with more internal memory in their consoles. But putting more internal memory in each console was expensive for both the producer and for the consumer. So by using cartridges, Nintendo could offload some of that cost, right? But at the price of making the production of games more expensive, cartridges are just inherently more expensive to produce. And further, one other issue is that it's a lot harder to develop games when you have such a limited space to work with. CDs you know, they could store music, they could store video, just way more information than cartridges could handle. And this caused a ton of friction with developers. So if you remember from the PlayStation episode, Sony had very low licensing fees. Sony got $10 per game, and that included making the discs, the manuals, the packaging, all of that. Production-wise, it cost Sony $2 to make a 640 megabyte CD. To manufacture a cartridge for the N64, it supposedly cost around $30 in production costs and it could only hold 64 megabytes. Yeah, and that's a huge problem um, because oh, yeah. you, you're stuck with much less um, memory and memory also makes better graphics. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can't make as much money from it. It's true. Now, Howard Lincoln tells the media not to worry and says that, you know, there are new forms of how you can compress data and that compression would let them store way more in those megabytes, you know, that were on the on the cartridges. But the talk within the industry is that Nintendo games would be uh, the, like way, they would be smaller than the games that other companies could put out. And speculation ran rampant. Why was this choice made? Like, yeah, it does have benefits, but it's really expensive. Some claimed that they did it so that their games would be harder to pirate. Others claimed that it gave them more control over the manufacturing process and therefore they could keep all of the profits. I will paraphrase Howard Lincoln here. This is not a direct quote. So in a later interview, he said that the piracy angle was true and that it was something that they knew Sony was going to struggle with because CDs are a lot easier to copy. But also, some of the engineers at the company kind of pushed back against CDs, and they felt like they wanted to make cartridges to make the kind of games that they wanted. So, like, it was this one-two punch, right? Um, engineers wanted it within Nintendo, not necessarily outside Nintendo, uh, and that they wanted to go at it from the piracy angle. And then, like, this whole, like, they internally keep control over the process is just like an, un you know, like a benefit to them because they want that control anyway. Yeah. Small side thing. Yeah. I always preferred cartridges to CDs for some reason. And I don't know why. I just like them. Um, and it's a weird, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'd always take a cartridge 
um, rather than a CD, even though I know that a cartridge gives me downsides. I would say that for me, I actually might agree with you. And the reason is, is because um, if you are a child, cartridges are way more durable. And Dude, yeah. scratched CDs could ruin everything. But, you know, you had to really mess something up with the components of a cartridge for it not to work. So I think that that, you know, I, I was reading an article and somebody was like, yeah, like when you compare this to other systems, it, it, it wasn't as good in a lot of ways, which we'll talk all about here in a few. Uh, but like, you know, they were like, my N64 still turns on and all my cartridges still work. I can't say that about most of my CD based games. Dude, same. I have in, in the, in the cupboard behind me, there's the super Mario 64 cartridge mm-hmm. and it's still working and it still has my one 120 stars safe. Wow. And sometimes I put it in just to look at it. <laughs> That's pretty crazy, man. 120 stars. Did you get Yoshi on top of the, did you go see Yoshi? Yeah. yeah you know, there were old rumors that if you, if you got those, that you could ride Yoshi around and that was how you unlocked yeah. it, but you obviously couldn't. You just got That's to see him for a second. I was really mad that I never made it. I, I, always, I always thought it was my mistake that I didn't know that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this was like, you know, what, you had to either get a strategy guide or like go on the internet and the internet was like really in its infancy then. So, you know, yeah. not a lot you could do. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I like them. Yeah. I think, well, I also like not to, not to just keep talking about this, but there's, there's a tactile nature to them. That's like different yeah. than a CD. And, uh, yeah. And remember when you put your, you put it, you put in the CD and it doesn't work and you're like, okay, what do I do now? Clean mm-hmm. the CD. This is really, I need to be careful about this. Mm-hmm. And if the cartridge doesn't work, you did this thing where you ripped it out of the console and just like, you, you, you still breathing into it. Which is bed in. You, you gave it a good shake and then you turned it on again and then it worked. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere that blowing on cartridges does nothing, but we thought it did. We thought it did, okay? We you had know, it's, power. It's like, it's like if you play Pokemon on your Game Boy and you attack the enemy, you have mm-hmm. to turn the Game Boy sideways to make the health bar go down faster. Oh my god. I never did that. I always did that. <laughs> I was told about the up B thing with uh, with Pokeballs, uh, and I never did it because I didn't believe it. <laughs> um, but yeah, there were a lot of like things going around back then. What a time. Okay. So anyway, um, so we're, <laughs> they, they decided to go with cartridges and we're, you know, we're kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, but this caused a lot of issues with game developers. So if you made a game that didn't sell well and you used CDs, you would not lose as much money uh, as if you made cartridges. Further, yeah. cartridges took forever to produce compared to a CD. So this meant that a publisher had to have a game and then they had to try to predict demand long before they would even need it. And when games hit the market, they ended up being typically $10 more expensive on average for the N64 than other systems. So like big downsides there. Further, this really disincentivized third-party developers from making games. Nintendo owned the ability to make cartridges like fully and they could give their first-party developers um, a lower price of development. So this made outside developers, it made their overhead more expensive to produce on the console because you know they have to sort of come into this existing system that Nintendo is internally benefiting from. So with all of this, many companies who traditionally made games for Nintendo started backing out 
from making games for the system. Both Square and Enix, or as we know them now, they've merged to be Square Enix, uh, moved Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior to the PlayStation simply because it had more space to work with. Namco left at one point, um, and a lot of creators cited that working with CDs just gave them less restrictions, more artistic freedom. I think um, in the PlayStation episode, I mentioned Peter Molyneux was on there and he said something like it was be- it was like being released from jail, uh, moving from Nintendo to to the PlayStation because they just had way more freedom. Yeah, DMA Design said the same thing about when they worked with Nintendo that they were they're really hands on. Mm-hmm. If it comes to development, so you're you're kind of stuck. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, back to the main story. That year, um, nineteen eighty four, Lincoln announces that the name of the new console is going to be called the Ultra sixty four. Pretty close to what we ended up with, I guess. And at the nineteen ninety four Summer Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. Nintendo decided to give reporters a small preview of the Ultra 64. Um, So, you know, they just wanted to hype up. uh, This is this 64-bit game system. And they didn't give their preview at the main show, however. They were very selective about it. So what executives did um, is they hired a bus that took reporters to a hotel. There at the hotel, they had a suite. And in that suite, they would show previews of what the upcoming console would going to be. And in the room, um, there were four televisions, no consoles to be found. You couldn't even see a prototype. And instead, the TVs just had footage of the upcoming game, Killer Instinct. And they said, this is a game that's rendered on new hardware. They claimed the console would hit in 1995, the next year, and it would be priced around $250. So they didn't even see it. Uh, They showed other things at the show, um, main show. We'll just gloss over a little bit for time's sake. Uh, Donkey Kong Country was the big showstopper for Nintendo, made by Rare, that we just talked about. And the game drew them a ton of favor at the show that year and would garner them a lot of clout in the industry. And they announced the Super Game Boy, which lets you play Game Boy games on the SNES, but that was about $60, which was like more than it cost to just buy a new Game Boy, which was weird, but whatever. Um, Trip Hawkins was there, because of course he was. And he had something he's to say. Every, he's everywhere. He is. <laughs> In the shadows. Smiling. He, he reaches out a a suave, sultry tendril and just sticks it in and then just pulls it right back out. <laughs> that was a little more um, sexual than I wanted it to be, but we're going to, we're going to go with his quote. <laughs> um, I realized that Nintendo keeps saying that the ultra 64 will be released in 1995, but there is absolutely no evidence to support that. What they did in Chicago was show people the coin-op hardware, which has absolutely no connection with the Ultra 64 from an internal standpoint. No way, Jose. It's a big promotional head fake. If he, Nintendo Vice President Peter Main, told you in six months, mark your calendar and call him on that date, he'll tell you, no, six months from now, and he'll still be blowing smoke at that point. So there's Trip Hawkins talking shit as he usually does. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what he does, right? Yeah, that's what he knows everybody, and when you ask him something, he's going to talk shit about even his own people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
Uh, and we can dig into this more another day, but um, as other companies began to release new fifth-gen consoles, Nintendo really held fast with the success of Donkey Kong Country. And it showed consumers... Uh, that Nintendo was still a place to be for really killer games. And they were strongly outperforming the 3DO and the Jaguar in sales with just a good SNES game. But I also think it's really important to note that there was market penetration with the SNES that the other consoles didn't have. So it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges, and I like, think it's expected. But... That being said, the 3DO at the time was trying very hard to show itself as the technologically superior console. And when people were making games that looked as good as Donkey Kong, just using, you know, the Super NES, I mean, they couldn't fit as much on there, but like, holy shit, it looked good. And so it really mm -hmm. sullied a lot of the other consoles in the eyes of writers at the time that were like, man, Nintendo is cranking out this stuff on like an old console and you're trying to sell us this new expensive expensive stuff okay in january of 1995 nintendo announced that the final chipset that would be used in the console was done and they gave the press the final specifications that it would have it would have a 64-bit processor as they previously advertised making it the fastest processor of that console generation it has a separate graphics processor that could generate 100,000 texture-mapped polygons a second. It could do things like ray tracing, anti-aliasing, things that the PlayStation couldn't do. And the way that they talked about it, it made it seem more likely that it would be out that year. However, a reporter named Jim Carlton was working for the Wall Street Journal, and he started doing some sleuthing. In May of 1995, and through a series of interviews, he found out that some of the companies making games for the system were not showing financial projections for the system for that next year. So he asks Nintendo about it, and the company admits to him that the console was not releasing in 1995. Howard Lincoln apparently got up early the next morning and started making calls to reporters to prep them for the article, and also to confirm himself that the console would not be coming to market in 1995. It turns out, Trip Hawkins was right. Imagine you want to be an investigative journalist, but you also don't want to get killed. So <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you start researching video game companies because these people just make video games. They're not going to kill you. <laughs> Cut to the Nintendo office. This man just got the call from the reporter. He's like, how do we kill this man? <laughs> We need to make it look like an accident, but we also need to make a very powerful statement. <laughs> I know what we'll do. We'll embarrass him in front of everyone. <laughs> the shame. Yes. He'll never rebound. <laughs> he insulted us. We have to insult him. <laughs> you stink of poo. <laughs> they just like TP his car and they're like, ha ha, the embarrassment. <laughs> We TP'd it with Nintendo-branded TP! Ha ha ha! Genius. Yes. Hey, guys. My cousin's gonna come kick your ass, okay? <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. All right. So, anyway, this article hits. And a week afterward, the very first Electronic Entertainment Expo, E3, took place in Los Angeles. Now, if you have listened to our other episodes, we have talked so much about this particular E3 because it was quite the spectacle. Sega announced that they shipped the Saturn early, which would end up hurting them in the long run. 
Sony followed up their presentation with their famous $299 speech on how much their console was going to cost. It was crazy. So what was Nintendo up to that year? They were mostly focusing on stuff unrelated to the Ultra 64. They showed off things for the Super NES, the Game Boy, an upcoming quasi-virtual reality console they were trying to make called the Virtual Boy. They announced Yoshi's Island, Donkey Kong Country um, 2, I guess it would have been, Killer Instinct. Um, So that same year, that same Virtual Boy I just mentioned launched in August and it flopped immediately. And I would talk more about that, but I, one, uh, this episode is dense and two, I think it deserves its own episode. Um, Just know that it didn't do very well and it faded into obscurity like immediately. So there's this side project, poof, it's gone. Uh, there were big releases for Nintendo to compete, um, uh, rather that they were supposed to compete with as the year progressed. For example, Windows 95 released 10 days after the Virtual Boy launch and like totally revolutionized PC gaming, I feel, for the mass market. Uh, the PlayStation dropped in September of that year to massive fanfare. But where's Nintendo? Why is this console taking so long? Well, let's talk about a few reasons. For one... A lot of it came down to its flagship game, Super Mario 64. Internally, the game was turning out to be great. I think that we can dive deeper into this another day, um, but the game was just taking a long time to finish. Nintendo was very careful that they did not want to release a console without a Mario game. And there was friction there between developers and um, like executives. Um, they delayed the release for a while until Mario could be done and manufactured and put out. And I think that even though this really delayed them, I think that they avoided a big issue that Sega had, which is that you can't put out a console without games of your flagship series if you have one, right? So like the Saturn never put out a new Sonic game and it really hurt them. And so I think that there was some thought there, right? Like they saw Sega just floundering and were like, we're not going to do that. So yeah, makes sense. And then also just imagine a Nintendo release without a Mario game. It just oh, it doesn't make sense. No way. Sense. Couldn't happen. On the other hand, a PlayStation game doesn't need a certain... Because they never made Crash, for example, their mascot. Not officially. It wasn't until late November of 1995 that Nintendo was ready to show off the final project at Nintendo Space World. They displayed the console at that show under the name they finally decided to give it, the Nintendo 64. So if you've never seen one, um, it's like a black rectangle. It has a cartridge slot. It has two buttons on the top. One turns the power on, one resets it. But the interesting thing about it is that the console had four controller ports just built into it, which was kind of unheard of at the time. Like, I had a PS1. And I remember having to buy an adapter just for like the two mm-hmm. or three games that you could play with four people on that. So you have and, that special split dongle thing. Yep. Yep. And it would plug into like, I mean, I guess technically it allowed you to be able to play games with eight players, but I don't even know how many there were that you could play with eight players on a PS1. Um, like if you had two of the adapters, right? But it, yeah. Anyway, right out of the box, bam, four controller slots. So I think this is something that will serve them well later. 
And this is also where they debuted the controller. And somehow, up until this point, the controller design had not been shown or leaked. And what was really innovative about it is that it had three handles that you could hold. Uh, sometimes it is lovingly referred to as the trident. Uh, some describe it as looking like the letter M with buttons. Yeah. It had a directional pad uh, on the left side. And in the center, it had a stick that could sense how much force that you gave when you pushed it. So it could read input better than just a D-pad, which was really cool at the time, right? Like that was a big deal. Yeah, you could, yeah, you could like make Mario walk or run depending right. on how strong you pushed the um, stick. Yeah, and so like, you know, you could move in 3D and you could then use the, the D-pad to control the camera. And so looking back, this switch from D-pads to analog sticks seems so natural, but this was a big fucking deal at the time that Nintendo had done this. And it's something that co other companies would innovate on later with Sony putting out their own version um, a year later. So this was like sort of the first mainstream pass of video games at giving you more control over both the character and the camera. Um, but looking back at the controller, it was designed really weirdly. Like how the fuck are you supposed to hold the thing? Right? Like we only have two hands. And if you looked at it, it would be like, almost like they expected you to have three. But the idea was, is that you would change how you held it depending on the kind of game you were playing. Yeah. That was the idea. Yeah. Um, I read one article I, that you also, I never used the D-pad. I, I just never did. I yeah. think I had one game and I never liked the games that used the D-pad. So I just never did. I also remember feeling like the D-pad, um, <laughs> and it's been a while since I've used one of their controllers, you know, an N64 controller, but I seem to remember that the D-pad felt like it didn't, it wasn't as good as other um, consoles I had played on, specifically the PlayStation D-pad. Um, and I don't remember why. Maybe it's because they were like round buttons, but whatever it was. One thing. There's this game. The first Super Mario Mario Party came out for the mm -hmm. Nintendo 64. And there was mini games in Mario Party. Mario Party like this game that you can play with a lot of people. Yeah. And you play these mini games. It's kind of a board game in the console. And during some games, you would have to twist the stick very fast. <laughs> yes. And we would play so much Mario Party that the center of our <laughs> hands would become blistered. <laughs> And actually wow. start to start to bleed because we played so much Mario Party. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was like a hard plastic stick. It was not <laughs> very kind to your hands. It was really bad. Uh, side note: I fucking hate Mario Party. I will, I will, I will stand atop a mountain and scream how much I hate Mario Party. And the reason I hate Mario Party is this: uh, it is fun. Okay, it's fun. I'll give it that. It's a oh, it's a fun little series of video games. It's a party, right? You can absolutely beat ass in all of the mini games and just totally dominate the competition. And it'll be like, oh, Aunt Susan won because she did three pirouettes and she landed on the most green spaces. And Bowser just randomly decided she was cute, so she gets an extra star for that. And she gets the hippity hoppity flippity floppity Toad Space Rocket Award, and that's why she beats you. And I'm like, fuck this game. It's literally just random chance. It's random chance <laughs> the game. Fuck that game. I hate Mario Party. It's number wang. <laughs> That's number wang. Let's rotate the board. <laughs> okay. Um, so 
I read one article that suggested that having both a D-pad and a stick gave developers a lot of flexibility, uh, which is what they wanted. If developers didn't want to make games based around the stick, well, then they didn't have to. They could just use the D-pad. The controller also had a slot on the back that you could put things into, which would be used later in the console's life. One such thing was an extra memory pack that you could save things onto. Um, I guess they were like advertising it as like, this is how you can swap saves of things with other people. Because like, normally you'd save to the cartridge, right? You couldn't just give them your cartridge, but you could swap your save packs. I don't and know. It was the, the rumble pack, right? Yes, it made the That's controller so vibrate. Oh my um, why? Why? I don't know. Well, I think that... Um, don't even you know, start. No, I'm not going to listen to people that say vibrating controllers in any way increase the immersion of anything. Are you fucking kidding me? What kind of... Have you ever gone outside? When? Ever? Whenever anything happened to you, did your hand start vibrating so you felt more immersed in what really was happening? Are you fucking kidding me? How, how does vibrating controller in any way convey immersion? Stop, Tyler. Don't even stop. I'm not going to so discuss just, this. I think I'm just going to skip the next part we'll, about vibrating yes. controllers and immersion, and we'll just uh, we'll just move yeah. on. Yeah, it's just not do that. <laughs> In a later interview, <laughs> um, <laughs> Genyo Takeda, I can't even pronounce things, um, <laughs> who was the head of Nintendo Research and Development Team 3, because they broke into teams, right, uh, claimed that they originally tried to do a motion sensor wristwatch controller, like it was a watch that you would hold, uh, have on your wrist. Um, they applied for a patent and everything, but players that they had tested had a really rough time with it, and they just totally changed focus. And I note that here because this is the impetus for um, motion controllers that they used in the Wii and the Wii U and the Switch. Oh. So the console does it vibrate it. though. I mean, do you want it to? <laughs> <laughs> if it vibrates, I quit. I don't know. <laughs> if it vibrates, we riot. <laughs> anyway, the console is a big hit at the show. You know, they debut all this stuff. They debut uh, Super Mario sixty four and a game called Kirby's Air Ride, and. They announced something at the show that we're going to talk about a bunch as we continue this story, and it was called the 64DD. I guess the 64 d disk drive. The 64DD. <laughs> it was an add-on that would plug into the bottom of your console that would play CDs. Yes, I know. You're like, wait, what? Yes, an add-on that goes on the bottom of the console that plays CDs. They just said they didn't want to fucking do CDs, and now they're doing an add-on before the fucking console's out that does CDs. On the bottom of the console? On the bottom what? of the console. You take the console and you put it on top of the drive and it plugs in. There was like a thing on the bottom. It was like an expansion yeah, port. Yeah. Yeah. Go uh go find your uh go find your, your N64, flip it over. There's a spot you can open up. Sick. Yeah. So uh what it was gonna do, and what I thought was interesting is that it was actually bigger than the console itself. Uh, it gave you, yeah, right? Like this huge thing. It gave you more storage, a persistent clock so that you could make games that kept track of real world time and a bunch of other like little things. Further, it was going to be able to connect to the internet, 
you could interact with other people on the internet. I know, terrifying. I think and they want to do horse racing again, like they did with the Famicom. <laughs> I want you to hold on to that thought. I, okay, hold on to that horse racing thought. I promise you, it will come up. <laughs> I promise you. Or like okay. day trading or something. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, this will matter. Okay, okay. Okay, I thought you weren't going to remember that. <laughs> okay. They talked about designing multiplayer games that you could play with other people online in real time. They were going to work with the company Netscape, which nice. you, you know, got on the internet in the 90s. You've probably heard of Netscape. Uh, and a lot of people at Netscape had worked at Silicon Graphics. So that's because sort of like they're in. It would be an additional $90 to add to the console when it released, and it was anticipated in 1996. They did not give any technical uh, specifications, however. Okay, so remember, they say that the disk drive is going to hit in 1996. We'll come back to that. Why wasn't this included in the base console? Well, they talked about pricing. Basically, Nintendo was not only like super wedded to these cartridges, but they also wanted to keep the price down. The market was becoming really competitive, you know, the console market overall and they were worried well we're going to outprice ourselves if we keep adding all these things by the middle of 1995 the console was basically done uh nintendo at talked internally about doing a simultaneous release in japan north america and europe they're going to launch it all three places at once and then they realized they would not be able to de- meet demand in time and so they decided on a delayed release schedule and uh i want to just say Man, like what happened in Nintendo since then, where like at least at some brief period, they actually cared about whether or not they would have enough consoles on launch to meet demand. Like, I don't know, I'm thinking about like the Switch launch and how they were just like nowhere, right? Like you had to get on these crazy waiting lists and you couldn't get them for like a year. Um, Yeah. Okay. It was weird. A lot of internal talk at the time was that instead of having a large number of games, they would have a smaller number of games of substance, quality over quantity. And the console didn't release in 1995, as we expected. And it wasn't even until the May 1996 E3 that Nintendo showed up and officially unveiled the N64 to the press. All of the other consoles that we have done episodes on had been released at this time, so Nintendo is last to the party. The Saturn, at this point, was struggling, uh, mostly from their own mistakes. The 3DO was struggling to gain a user base. Atari was basically dead in the water and was beginning to purge their inventories at this point. But PlayStation, their greatest rival, was doing great. And by this point, according to their press releases, they had sold over a million consoles in the U.S. alone and five million across the world. So Nintendo hasn't even hit the party yet, and Nintendo's or, uh, and PlayStation's got like six million consoles sold. Um, plus, there's like other consoles on the market I didn't even talk about. We'll recap those at the end. So that being said, Nintendo's in a good place going into the show, and the press was really excited to get their hands on the console. And as they usually did, Nintendo held a press conference the day before, this time at the Biltmore Hotel. Howard Lincoln shows up. He shows the the N64 to the American press for the first time. He shows off a demonstration of Super Mario 64 and Pilot Wings. He says it's going to launch that year on September 30th, and it would retail for $250. And then on the show for later, they show people some other games, including Wave Race 64 and Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. You ever play either of those? I played Wave Race. Yep. That was really cool. And also that is that pilot 
wings thing where you flew with a hang glider? Uh, it was a plane, and it was an older game um, that came out on the, um, I think it was the SNES first, was the first game oh, that they okay. did there. Uh, and then um, it was like like a sequel to Pilot Wings that they were doing, like an upgraded 3D version of it okay. on the 64. Yeah. Uh so he tells him, you know, he tells him he's going to launch the air. Oh, I was going to say, I played Wave Race. I remember this. Um, I played Wave Race a single time, and I have a weird story about it. Uh, when I was a young kid, I had um, a really rare issue where I developed a bone cyst in my foot. So, like, I got a cyst on my bone in my heel. Did that hurt? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they thought that I... Um, they weren't sure at the time because screening wasn't that great in the, you know, when I was yeah. young. God, I would have been in like, what, fourth grade or something like that? Um, so very young. And they were like, he might have cancer. And like everybody was like all really like worried and like hush hush about things. And I'm just like running around in the yard, like <laughs> limping awkwardly. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, when they got in there, uh, they found out that it had eaten so much of my foot that um my they said my bone was thinner than an eggshell so they took bone out of my hip and they also put some artificial bone in my foot and they sewed me back up and i used to go back every year just to make sure i was doing okay i'm fine totally fine no issues since then uh but i remember being like super under the weather in the hospital and they were mm -hmm. like hey we got a special treat for you and they rolled out this like TV, like this portable TV thing that you'd plug in and it had wave race 64 on it. And I played it for like an hour until I was like, so sick. I like couldn't hold a controller. <laughs> nice. I also felt really awkward because there was like this other kid in my room and I was like, Hey, you want to play? And he was like, no, and he was like super sick. And I was like, Oh, and I felt really bad. Cause I'm like sitting there playing this loud video game. And I was like, I'll just quit. <laughs> That's the only time I ever played Wave Race 64. That's my only interaction I ever had with that game. <laughs> well, I was sick and all like totally on morphine. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, anyway. Um, okay. So back to our main story that isn't involving young children with rare bone diseases. Uh, <laughs> so then Peter Main. The vice president of marketing at Nintendo, he comes out, he starts talking about the video game market. And I'm not going to get into too big specifics here, but um, they claim that they knew Sony was dominating the market and that they were the biggest threats or their market share. Market share. Sega, on the other hand, they're like, Sega, we don't have to really worry about them. And they predicted that they would take a bunch of market share, but they wouldn't really take a ton of it from Sony. They would mostly take it from Sega. And then they discussed this whole big plan about how they were going to become the industry leader and they were going to take all this stuff from Sega and people were going to see the quality of Nintendo games and that was going to launch them to the top of the market. And then everybody goes fucking crazy. Oh yeah, Nintendo, they're going to dominate. Please be become a monopoly again. And then Nintendo throws a fucking massive party and I could not find a video on it. I tried, but apparently Cirque du Soleil performed at the party. They paid for them to be there. Just was going to say uh, cool, I guess. <laughs> uh, their booth was nuts. Uh, there is not a ton of footage on this, but I found some grainy videos. Um, I put 
some of them in the sources like there was like this stormtrooper there and he would like like fake harass people and he'd be like where are you going what are your intentions and then he'd be like hmm, fine move along and he'd like move people into the booth right like like he's looking for jedi or droids or whatever yeah. um uh, there was a huge Mario statue that would say lines to people as they walked under it. They projected a giant Wario head onto like this like wall in the smoke and it would say lines to people uh, as they were there. I think Charles Martinet was controlling it, but don't quote me on that. Um, they showed off playable Super Mario 64. They leaned into that hard and basically in their eyes, they kicked the show off right and everybody would remember it. And then, as we talked about in the Sony episode, Sony went up during their keynote address. Jim Wims, the executive VP of Sony, told everyone that they were dropping the price of their console to $199. And they were like, Sony was cranking out consoles so fast that they could barely even ship them to the people who wanted them at the $299 price point. And they were just going to drop it by $100 just to fuck everybody else. And Sega and Nintendo were fucking pissed because there had been a secret gentleman's agreement between all the companies that they would not lower prices at the show and sony stabbed all of them in the back they planned from it from the start and they would basically screw over nintendo as or as hard as they possibly could if they were able and they did revenge <laughs> nintendo <laughs> <laughs> much like sega you know, Nintendo executives are floored. What are they going to do? Would they drop their prices to keep pace with PlayStation? Sega broke first. And after the show, begrudgingly dropped the Saturn's price to $200. Nintendo, knowing that they had been beaten, dropped their price as well. On Sunday, June 23rd, Nintendo released the console to the Japanese market. Previously, there had been some difficulties getting uh, their consoles to consumers on release day. So they opted for a large network of stores that could carry it including convenience stores. Like you just walk into a 7-Eleven and buy a N64. Um, the Stephen Kent book that we always talk about said, um, quote, it might've been, or uh, it, that it might've been, quote, the most orderly launch of a highly anticipated console ever. They shipped 300,000 consoles and sold all of them. And while the launch was quite uh, relatively quiet and orderly, Japanese consumers were hyped I couldn't find a ton of stuff confirming this, but apparently there was like an N64 game show that was on TV. There were all these advertisements all over Japan. Um, some restaurants started serving like Nintendo themed food. It was like a whole big thing. In Germany, in the, there was a game show for kids. And the final game that they had to do was play Mario Kart on the N64. Really? Yeah, and that Nintendo basically struck a deal with that public TV show uh, to to include the N64 as a game of the game show. To advertise. Do you remember what the game show was called? I don't, but I will look it up. Okay, I was just curious. So Nintendo uh, tried very hard to tell the press why being last to the party was a good thing even though that they were releasing a year and a half later than like their main competitors. Basically they said that they, you know, waiting this long may allow them to be affordable. It allowed them to have reliable technology. The tech would be better than what consumers had at the present, but it did kind of seem like a stretch. So Nintendo then 
After the Japanese release, they spent $54 million on an advertising campaign for North America. Their focus would be the pre-teen gamer market. Some of the more popular slogans were, Get N or Get Out. Uh, That was the one I remember the most. As well as, Change the System. In Germany, it was, The New Dimension of Fun. And no, I didn't try to pronounce it in German. It's okay. I refuse. Uh, they had a big press event to showcase all the consoles they were shipping to the, you know, they're in the U S and they have this big thing and they're like, oh, well, I guess it was in Japan where they had the press event for reporters and they're like, look at all these consoles going onto planes. Oh, wow. Isn't this exciting? And of course the press was like, yes, it is so fucking exciting. Look at those consoles going onto planes. Ah! And so they ate this shit up. Right. And, and the release date gets set for September 29th a day before the, uh, the original announcement. Ooh. And uh, they sent 500,000 consoles and they were pre-sold before they arrived. And apparently the release in the United States was just insane. It made national news. There were reports of fights breaking out over consoles and stores. Seeing that the U.S. market was going to be one to tap, they transferred a lot of consoles that would have normally been going to the European release and shifted them to the U.S., which, as you might guess, pissed off a bunch of European retailers who had been expecting to get in on the consoles. And in November, Time Magazine called it the Machine of the Year. It was clearly making a splash. And while the U.S. market was burning very strongly, there was a problem. There were not enough games to meet demand. And the games that came out were very expensive. Some of them were not particularly long, which is something that had been, you know, we talked about, right? You can't fit that much on there. All that I could find that was available at launch in the United States was Super Mario 64 and Pilot Wings 64. Wave Race 64 hit in November. And then before the end of the year, only five more games hit the market, and those that hit were not great. Uh, They released Mortal Kombat without the blood, uh, and it was clear that the PlayStation version of the Mortal Kombat trilogy was just simply better. Mm -hmm. So Nintendo tries to get ahead of this bad PR that they just have no games. Howard Lincoln talked at an interview about how every game can't be a winner, and you know some of the games that came out are not that great, uh, but you know some are just going to be better than others. And other Nintendo executives, they really pointed, they're like, look at this. All the games that came out, they they sold, you know, almost all of them sold a million copies or more. Like, of co- people love our games, right? But the truth is, is that I want you to imagine you're this, you're in this situation where you're an early adopter of the N64. You bought one, you got one early and you go, cool, what am I going to play on this? And there's like five games to pick from. You're going to pick from that pool of five games, which is going to inflate the amount of games that they sold per game, right? So, like, of course they'd sell a ton because you want to be able to fucking play something on this console you bought. So in late November of 1996, Nintendo holds their Nintendo World Trade Show again. And since the system's out now um, everywhere, a big focus on the show was on this 64DD add-on, which hadn't released yet. At the show, the device had its own booth. And apparently developers from the U.S. traveled to the show so that they could learn about it and figure out what they needed to develop for it. But still, no prototype of this disk drive. They claimed it would release in 1997. Now, I couldn't figure out what made them switch to uh, 
like make, make the switch that they're about to tell you about. But apparently, instead of CDs for this disk drive, they decided that they were going to use floppy disks. <laughs> Because of course they did. Because of fucking of course they did. They just, they were like, CDs? No. Cartridges. CDs? No. Floppy disks. (laughs) Here's a quote. Describing the final choice of proprietary floppy disks instead of CD-ROM, Nintendo game designer mm, Shigesata Itoi, sorry for that pronunciation, explained, Quote, CD holds a lot of data, DD holds a moderate amount of data and backs the data up, and cartridge ROMs hold the least data and process the fastest. By attaching a DD to the game console, we can drastically increase the number of game, uh, of genres. But it, like that quote, like that was like their official thing, but it doesn't even say like why, still, why not CDs? So my take is yet again... Nintendo is so fucking worried about copyright protection that they just decide to start using old tech that they can make like a proprietary thing, even though it's going to give them worse results. I mean, I guess like it was technically in some ways faster, but like at what cost you're going back, you're going back to floppy disks, man. Anyway, back in the U S in just the first four months, the N64 sold half a million consoles in North America, as we mentioned, that holiday season, it was one of the big ticket items to get, and they were selling out insanely fast. Some stores would get them in and jack up the prices. There were reports of stores selling them for $600 the day before Christmas. In 1997, Nintendo, very briefly, began to outsell their competitors, including Sony. Some of the internal estimations were correct. Most of the market share that they took was from Sega. And by August of that year, they controlled 40% of the console market with Sony at 47 and Sega going down to 12. Now, one important thing to note is that they were still leaning into their other projects like the SNES and that they were still leading the industry overall in hardware and game sales. I think it was 56% of all sales of like game stuff was Nintendo. It's just that they were slowly losing that share of the market as consumers start to shift toward newer tech. At the 1997 E3, Nintendo held their typical pre-show press conference. They didn't have anything to show for the 64DD, and Howard Lincoln spoke about it. He said that the company would not release the device until there was enough software for it. But he said that at least 20 games were in development for it, and he touted that Donkey Kong 64 and a sequel to Super Mario 64 were coming. He said it would be until at least March of 1998 in Japan, and then a later release other places. Okay, so we're talking two years after their initial claimed release date. Also, there was some talk that there would be an Earthbound game for it called Earthbound 64. And then there was talk about a weird game called Cabbage that was supposed to be a virtual (laughs) pet thing. You're laughing because you saw me post about this in the Discord. Uh, Cabbage was this virtual pet thing which would track with the um, virtual pet craze. A breeding simulator, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was called a breeding simulator. And we were like, breeding simulator? I think that's something else, man. I'm going to breed this cabbage. (laughs) Breed cabbage. You have green leaf. It has green leaf. Make green leaf, baby. Give me the... Sorry, guys. (laughs) 
Give me the green leaf, baby. <laughs> Breed for me. <laughs> well, I'm going to go sow my seeds in the cabbage garden. <laughs> so if you listen to the previous episode, episode 21 about the Tamagotchi, you would know that there was a massive virtual pet craze going on at the time. And uh, this pretty much tracks with that, um, them trying to get in on that. So year after release, they had sold 3.6 million consoles in the U.S. alone. Nintendo's sales had gone up 156% from the previous year. But again, there were distribution issues. Consoles tend to sell in big waves around the holidays, but in the lead up to the 1997 holiday season, there were delays on highly anticipated games, such as Ocarina of Time. And there were difficulties producing cartridges. Knowing that their opponents had a massive edge on pricing, they announced that they would shift their pricing structure in a way that would cut production costs on games by 15%. This led to an influx of new companies who then decided to jump into the N64 um, development market. But a lot of things that got ported to cartridges showed the limitations of not using CDs. Many games lost their cutscenes. Things became more compressed. Things got cut, including high-res textures, music, levels. And there were just less new releases for the N64 than other consoles. Sony was absolutely cranking out games, but Nintendo releases lagged behind. That being said, there were a lot of releases at the time that came out that did make a big splash. Super Mario 64, GoldenEye 007, Star Fox 64, Mario Kart 64, Duke Nukem 64. Um, but most of the releases that really did well came from Nintendo's first party studio. Yeah. Was, Compare this to the variety. Was, you go ahead. Was Turok one of those games? Yeah, Turok came out. I, I can't tell you what year. I hated Turok. It was <laughs> such a fucking shit game. <laughs> Especially because it used the D-pad. But also, fuck Turok. What, <laughs> what is wrong with the people uh, that made that game? <laughs> I don't know yeah, it was I out by it. then. <laughs> It looks like it came out in March of uh, 1997. Two is an example of why 3D is bad. Like they like <laughs> try to make a game with 3D, but just really fuck it up. That's how you make two. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just I spent a lot of my money on, on my on my on my allowance on buying that two uh-huh. game, and it was so fucking bad, and I could, I was really mad. <laughs> and I'm still mad. <laughs> Try to make a 3D game and fuck it up. Like, the Turok story. Like, like 20 years later, I'm still mad. <laughs> That's okay. I still have games that I have severe resentment for. Don't get me started on the weirdness of Dark Cloud 2. We'll save that for another day. <laughs> okay. Um, compare this. So, okay. They're having trouble cranking out games at the rate that the Saturn and the PlayStation were. And, uh, you know, both of those consoles, they're putting things out for less money. And I mean, you could buy a PS1 game for around $50 back then, but some 64 games were going for $80. And there was talk that based on development costs and like the tech within the cartridges that they might even reach $100 per game. These days, if I see a game for $80, I'm like, that's fucking gross. No way. If I saw $100 for a game as a kid, there would be no way I'd be buying it. First off, I was poor as shit. But second, just that's crazy, right? 
So that being said, uh, Nintendo's internal licensing uh, changes did actually reduce prices, but even still, they were more expensive than PS1 games. And while the console was doing well in the US, it didn't do nearly as well in the Japanese market and was being outsold by both Sony and Sega. So in April of 1998, Nintendo has news about the 64DD. You want to guess what that news was, Docs? It's... Um... It's it's not gonna happen and it's delayed. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "Don't worry, it's gonna hit later this year, 1998." It had no presence at E3, and a lot of magazines started claiming that it was dead in the water. Imagine a parallel universe where there's still floppy disks in Nintendo consoles. I mean, and we have an Earthbound Nintendo game. Imagine that. Yeah, like an Earthbound Nintendo 64 game. That would be cool. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I would have been interested to have seen some of the, I mean, we're, you're, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Obviously some of these things didn't come out. Right. Uh, it would have been really cool to see what they would have done with that tech. Yeah. Probably. Um, Go, probably what? Go broke like Sega. Maybe something like that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and Nintendo never made a console again. <laughs> um, as the mid-90s shifted to the late 90s, Nintendo was already working on their next console, which they then told the world about, calling it The Dolphin as a code name. We would later know this to be the GameCube, and they dripped some info about it. Uh, one cool thing that dropped in August of 1998 was something for the N64 called The Transfer Pack. It was bundled with Pokemon Stadium. Did you ever play Pokemon Stadium? Yeah, um, I could do another rant if you want to, but I can. Maybe <laughs> you could do. I mean, you could do a rant. What the fuck is wrong with Pokemon Stadium? I mean, Pokemon is such a great game, but Pokemon <laughs> Stadium. What is this game even like? What's the purpose of it? Like you, what are you doing? Are you, you you can use your Pokemon from your game? Yeah, right. I understand, but you can also kind of battle each other. But all the animations are really not fleshed out. It's a terrible game. I'd never understood what was the point of Pokemon Stadium other than just taking money from people that are addicted to Pokemon and buy anything that is Pokemon and then being terribly disappointed into in the Pokemon franchise. So don't 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 ask me to play Pokemon Stadium with you. <laughs> because I will have great disappointment in your judge of quality. <laughs> so our friend Andre, who um, very graciously edited the last episode of the podcast for us, uh, <laughs> he has, I've heard him say before, put Pokemon on anything and people will buy it. Yeah. And I actually agree. That is um, Pokemon is, it's, it's, it's almost like Disney and it's um, uh, how they leverage their character models and, and, and leverage nostalgia in a lot of ways. And I, I'm totally susceptible to it. 100%. I know, I know I'm hooked. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm actually doing a playthrough of Pokemon Yellow right now, which is relevant to what we're about to talk about. Uh, and let me tell you, that game, holy shit, it is what a what a mess. <laughs> but it was great at the time. And so anyway, okay, so as, as Docs has mentioned here, so this transfer pack, what it let you do is it let you transfer things from your Game Boy Color or, you know, to... Um, to the N64 games and it would give you benefits in some way. And what was really cool about it with Pokemon, even though Docs doesn't think it's cool, <laughs> is that you could transfer your Pokemon from 2D to the N64, which was in 3D. And 
that was really cool to someone who was super into Pokemon, right? Like you could, whoa, my, that's my Pokemon. That's my Pokemon mochi or whatever and he's on the screen whoa and he's 3d and like yeah it sucked but like i think it was uh when i first did it i was like this is really cool but the appeal mm -hmm. faded really quickly yes yes i would actually agree with that i thought uh stadium was going to be really neat and i got i got really bored of it quickly as well i agree yeah yeah um, one thing also that you could do is you could um, you could play Game Boy uh, games on your TV. That was like a thing, right? Kind of like they had tested a little bit before. Um, you know, other a couple other games used it. But near the end of 1998, I couldn't find an exact date. They released an add-on to the console that they called the Expansion Pack. It added four megabytes more RAM to the console, and it made gameplay on games a lot smoother. But it led to some games that required you to buy it for them to function. There weren't a ton of them. Okay. At the 1999 E3 show in May, they showed off the 64DD. Okay, so we're at 1999 at this point. But they didn't give a release date. <laughs> Still. Apparently, they claimed that Japanese developers needed more time. And further, they said, uh, we're actually... Um, we're not sure if this is even going to release in the U.S., so sorry. And they're like, yeah, and the games we had planned for it are probably just going to get like a cartridge release. So they were really winding that down. So December of 1999, the 64DD released to Japanese audiences. Knowing that they weren't likely to make much from it, they sent very few to stores. Further, to get the online starter kit to let you play online and a service called Randnet, you had to order it by mail. It came with a modem and you would connect it to the internet and that modem plugged into the cartridge slot. Whoa. Some of you who have listened to the podcast, as I keep tying this back together, uh, you might remember that Nintendo experimented with internet connectivity for a while, as we talked about in episode nine, uh, about the Satellaview. And at that time, they had a partnership with um, a company called ST Giga, which they used for the Satellaview Satellaview until April of that year, 1999. Then they partnered with a company called Recruit, and they created a new company called Randnet which was to be used for the internet service. I remember how the ideas that they had for that were really cool. Like you could live, listen to live music during gameplay and stuff like that. Yeah. This is Teleview. Yeah, yeah. 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 I really, I really liked what that was really, really innovative. Okay. So this add on, you know, like I said, you plug it into the cartridge slot. Uh, where, that's where the modem goes. Um, and then you'd put the discs in the, in the, you know, the little thing that went under it. Um, it was pretty cool for what it was. I, I'll, I'll give them some credit. If you had access to Randnet, you'd pay a monthly subscription that was about $15 a month. You also had to pay a 20 yen per minute, uh, 20 yen per minute to connect to the service, which is about 20 cents. Um, but that was later changed to a yearly prepaid model where you just got everything for $290 a year. As part of the subscription, they would send you games in the mail, though. So it was like, you're paying for this internet thing, and then they send you stuff to play on the console. Dude, that's, like, just look at Nintendo. 
they are these like, we don't want to use CDs because they're going to steal our stuff. And then they crank out something that's like 20 years ahead of its time. Like, yeah. by the way, we will do gaming subscriptions that will only show up 20 years later and will be vastly successful. But we will do it 20 years too early and massively crash with it. And nobody will ever hear about it. But it's going to be hugely successful two decades later. This is I. We'll do a wrap up near the end here because we're closing in on the end. Uh, we'll do a wrap up, but like the the fucking dichotomy between like we have the craziest, most innovative, awesome shit, but we're only we're gonna use floppy disks. <laughs> you know, like it's so weird. Like I just. It, that company is, it's its two animals constantly battling each other. And one of them is like, I have the coolest, most innovative shit. And the other one's like, no, <laughs> cartridges. Can, can we innovate on the cartridges? Maybe just a little. <laughs> Only using peripherals. As a Only as a peripheral. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. As a peripheral. And you had to order it in a magazine. It, it has to be. Only in- and the peripheral has to be a cartridge itself. So you have to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, actually, it kind of was, right? You plugged it in. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> Every, God. Everything is a cartridge. <laughs> Oh man, what's that thing? Like, I forget what it's called, like crabification or something, where everything slowly turns into crabs. With Nintendo, everything just slowly turns into cartridges. <laughs> okay. Um, on Randnet, everything was done with the controller. Uh, even typing messages, uh, you type messages by using the stick and buttons. You could send emails. You could connect and with other users about games and send each other messages. You could buy things. You could browse the web. You could make little avatars that other people could see that were like your personalized well, avatars. Here's my question: Could could yeah. you bet on horse racing? <laughs> Let me read the next two sentences of the script. <laughs> There was going to be a news section, but that didn't pan out. And there was supposed to be a bunch of exclusive websites and places you could go to, and that never came. The only thing that ever dropped in that regard was horse racing. (laughs) Stuff on horse racing. There was a whole section where you could go look at all the stuff about horse racing, which if you remember from the Satellaview episode, there was a niche market because (laughs) Nintendo in Japan tried a system where you could connect to the internet with the original Famicom and it just immediately got dominated by people who wanted to do like horse race betting from from their It's not two animals, it's three animals. And the two animals, they both agree (laughs) that one is conservative and wants to stay in the old stuff and the other one wants to push for innovation. (laughs) But they both agree that Nintendo is family friendly. But the third animal... Doesn't agree about it. He's a horse. <laughs> it really wants to lose a lot of money at the racetracks. And it does not care how you achieve it. But it really needs to bet on that race. It really needs to do that. And so you got to get your last money and, and put it onto that racetrack because gambling is good for you kids. You should do gambling, right? <laughs> I just imagine this boardroom and in the boardroom, they're all sitting there and they're like, hmm, what are we going to put on this? And they turn and at the head of the table is a horse and the horse just goes, bet on me. (laughs) And they all go, very good, very good. Yes, sir. Of course, of course. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, as you might imagine, <laughs> the the discontinuation of the 64 Double D and the online subscription to Rannet was announced in October of 2000. It went offline in February of 2001. There were only ever nine games created for it in an internet app. The biggest of them was a game called Mario Artist, which came with a mouse and is a successor to the old 1992 Mario Paint game. None of the- There was a mouse for the Nintendo 64. Was there? Oh, yeah, I guess there was, right? Because, um... Um, couldn't you play? Oh, I was, I was, I was ask, asking a question. I don't know. What was there one? Well, there was for this, uh, and it connected to the console. I think maybe I'm confusing it with my Genesis. I know my Genesis had a had a mouse. Um, yeah, and it was really only used to play this weird thing I had called this game called Wacky Worlds. But that's a story for another day. Anyway, yeah, it came with a mouse. You could you know you could use a mouse yeah. with it. You could, um, and it was like the whole big thing was like, oh, it's like the sequel to Mario Paint. Cool. Um, <clears throat> none of the other features showed up, including the proposed multiplayer abilities, NES emulators. They were going to have NES emulators. They were going to have a music player with exclusive music. At its peak, the service had 15,000 members in Japan. And on a goodwill note, like a, a goodwill move by Nintendo, Nintendo offered to buy back any Randnet hardware from its users and then made the service free after they announced its closure. So, you know, you went out and you bought all this stuff and you don't want it anymore. We will just buy it back from you for whatever you paid for it. That's respectable. I actually agree. I think yeah. it was a small price to pay to preserve their brand. I, um, do, I do believe that all of this nonsense Nintendo is doing is not like many people say that Nintendo is. Uh, it's the enemy of the consumer with all its very strict rulings on how to handle their franchises. I mm-hmm. do, th- I do feel like that many of or many of the things that they do actually stem from wanting to produce a very good product by yeah. having full control of it and not letting. Mm-hmm. Because if people interfere with what you do, it might turn into something bad and. They will make you responsible for it, even though you were not. But they want to have full responsibility. And I they are that. very concerned with image, the yeah. image that they have cultivated. And, you know, we didn't even talk about this, but a lot, you know, I got to do an episode on the video game crash someday. But uh, it, it's thought that the reason that Nintendo became the front runner in and and basically rein, you know reinvigorated the industry at this time when there was this huge flood of games and consoles and nobody was buying things anymore was because they specifically tried to give it the Nintendo seal of quality right that they would only put yeah. out really good games and in that regard it would make people you know appreciate their brand and appreciate gaming more and i think it largely worked i think and i think that's kind of what they did with the N64 which will get to here in a quick second um i saw a 64 dd in person in seattle just a couple of months ago uh, i was in a retro gaming store and i saw one and i was like holy shit i like never thought i would physically see one of these it was in I a case like and it was like expensive huh? now because nobody has them yes absolutely they're like it was like 1200 dollars in the store <sighs> so i obviously didn't buy it but i was just like whoa i saw one wow i saw Amazing. one physically how cool right yeah um, okay, so as we near the end of our tale, the GameCube released in 2001, 
the uh, Nintendo started, um, they made the decision to wind down the N64. They stopped producing them in 2002. By the end of its life cycle, the console had, th- uh, had sold 32.93 million units. To give context here, the NES sold close to 62 million. The SNES was 49 million. So this N64 did worse of the worse than both of those in pure sales, but there was a lot more competition. Yeah, that's what I want to say because then N64 had the PlayStation 1 as competition, which in itself oh, yeah. is a huge deal. So We've hit the wrapping up stage of our very long episode here. And I, I knew this would be a long one because it's like, you know, the last, uh, the last episode in this big arc we've been doing here. So as we usually do, let's talk about the people in the story first. Um, and then we'll talk about the console. So, uh, president Yamauchi has a very long story, as I mentioned back in the Satellaview episode. And I feel that that guy really deserves his own episode. He was with Nintendo in various forms for years. And then he finally left the company fully in 2008. I think like what I was reading is, is um, he wanted to leave the company on a high note, which was supposed to be the release of the 64 DD. Uh, that didn't happen obviously uh he was getting ready to retire he's very old um and he stayed around i think until 2001 and then he like stayed on as like a like part of the board for a while but his whole thing mm-hmm. is that like he was just kind of waiting until he felt that the company was in good hands that he was okay to leave this like you know family company to somebody else um he died in 2013 um and he did some philanthropy work in the middle there but like i said we'll we got to do an episode on him someday too. Cool. Howard Lincoln stayed with the company until 2000, and then he left to become the CEO of the Seattle Mariners baseball team. Why the hell did Howard Lincoln suddenly get into the Seattle Mariners? It's a long story there too, but the team was actually owned by Yamauchi. He owned the team. He had bought it. So Lincoln just transitioned into that role. And uh, from what I can tell, he did that for a while. And then he just moved on to, he just retired and moved on to some minor things and philanthropy projects, which is just mostly centered around Seattle. What's your face? Yeah, let's just, no, let's just let that go. I don't know. (laughs) This is so weird. It really is. (laughs) Okay. So. Rich people, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) So. Let's do a wrap up on the console. The N64, it didn't live up to the expectations of Nintendo. It sold less than their previous two consoles, but it was honestly revolutionary in a lot of ways. And it was a huge technological leap in some aspects. I mean, like when people saw Super Mario 64 for the first time, they would talk about how like they were in the future of gaming. And in some ways they were, but I think the biggest decision that really hurt Nintendo was their choice to continue using cartridges. And while cartridges do have some advantages, it just made them lose their edge. It was hard for developers to work on it. Um, and, and most of the really good games that came out for it were like near the end of the console's life um, because they had finally figured out how to work with it. Right. Uh, it, you know, it was harder to program for. And, and, you know, we talked about this earlier, but like, I feel Like Nintendo is so interesting because they're just so innovative and then they're just stuck in the past in other places. And that unwillingness to drop older tech is really, I think, one of the reasons that um, Sony ended up on top. 
also like I think it's a it, it's it's a mix of being stuck in the past while also pushing for the future because they didn't mm-hmm. remain in two D right they did the three D push, yeah. but then they. They, they kind of refused to also upgrade their hardware to kind of support that. And for yep. example, Sony with PlayStation was completely fine with releasing a ton of 2D games that looked really awesome, which yep. there weren't that many of as far as I know for the Nintendo 64. I'm sure there were some. Um, yeah, probably, yes, right. But, I'm, I'd but, like, but, but there's like a ton yeah. of PlayStation 1 games where I'm like, that was a huge PlayStation 1 game, like Apes Odyssey and shit like that. Yeah, um, yeah. And mm-hmm. for the Nintendo 64, I cannot think of one at the moment, and which is anecdotal, but yeah. still uh, it, some kind of indicator for there's a mix between being stuck in right. the past and being stuck in the future, and that kind of problem amplifies yeah, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before. So one of the things I do on on the side is I, I speed run Mega Man 8. And Mega Man 8 was the first uh, Mega Man game that I owned personally. I'd played others as a child, but I owned it for the PlayStation. And I still, to this day, I have played all of the Mega Man games with the exception of some offshoot series. Um, and I think that 8 is the most beautiful sprite work-wise. And it's the smoothest. And why? Because it was a 2D game using 3d hardware and it wasn't even a 3d game but they used the power of a 3d console to make 2d games and it was it's beautiful i absolutely love it and that's why i speed run it even though um it has terrible voice acting it's just awful that released for the playstation right it did yeah it released for the playstation i I guess i was in my mind using that as an example of how you could do that you could leverage Mm -hmm. that in a way um that you didn't see as much yeah um so, but Nintendo was kind of aware of this, uh, this, this, this problem. And, and so I found a Newsweek article from 2000 that with a little bit of stuff on it, quote, today, Nintendo hardware development chief Genyo Takeda repeatedly uses, um, the word Hansei, meaning reflective regret when he refers to the difficulties of programming Nintendo 64 games. Quote, when we made Nintendo 64, we thought it was logical that if you want to make advanced games, it becomes technically more difficult. We were wrong, he admits. We now understand that it's the cruising speed that matters, not the momentary flash of peak power. Nicely worded, I guess. Guess, yeah. Um, Note that the... N64 is the last mainline console to use cartridges until the most recent Nintendo console, the Switch, came out in 2017. Now, I've talked about this weird disk drive thing that they tried to release and ultimately failed on, and some have spoken about how the failure of the 64DD really hurt Nintendo's ability to get things out. IGN speculated that the add-ons delays are why Nintendo canceled their 1998 trade show. Apparently, a lot of the software was very dependent on the drive's release, and when the drive kept getting hit with very long delays, a lot of that software was canceled or revamped into something else. So, example, Ocarina of Time, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, was going to be a 64DD game, and they just you know, trimmed it down and turned it into a regular cartridge instead. But I think that to keep, you know, to to further summarize some of this, I think that, you know, Nintendo did have 
lasting effects on gaming. You know, I mentioned this 64 DD drive, right? It had this um, persistent time that, that it could keep track of. And so there was talk about like persistent worlds, right? This weird cabbage game. Um, the first game that came out <clears throat> that had real time was a game called Animal Forest, which was developed into the Animal Crossing series. Hmm. The unreleased cabbage game was spoken of as a precursor to what they did for nintendogs the avatar creator on the 64 dd was a precursor to the me that you would create on later nintendo systems so like an interesting legacy there that didn't totally go to waste yeah so my take here <clears throat> i feel like what the n64 did well was lean into its existing ip or new ones and put out games that had staying powder power I mean, like, I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of games that came out from the N64 era. So obviously Super Mario 64, but you had the first Mario Kart, Paper Mario, Mario Party, Star Fox 64, GoldenEye, F-Zero X, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Super Smash Brothers. Think about all of those. Those are like mega monster hits. They've had huge impacts on the industry in one way or another. Some of them are still going strong. They birthed franchises, right? And, um, and you know, like that, like that staying power is what I find interesting about the N64. And quick side thing, you know, I mentioned that it had four controllers, but like you picked up four, you know, you picked up a couple extra controllers. Dude, you could play big multiplayer games right out of the box. Four people could just sit down anywhere and play a game. Like I used to play Mario Kart in college, like a decade later, and it was just so fun. Even then, like we would get trashed and play Mario Kart and it was so fun. And so like when I read these retrospectives on the console, like a lot of people thought of the 64 as a quote, party console you know you break it out when you want to play multiplayer with friends and like and i think that's true i think that that largely sticks in golden eye you do not pick odd job and if you do you have identified that one friend in your friend group not to trust do you know who the friend of you is that you should not trust because he will pick odd job even though you tell him not to it is you. me tyler I would pick up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Goldeneye really like revolutionized the shooter genre, right? Yeah. Um, but so you know, okay. So we just talked about all these high quality games, but I would also say you know the system was very starved for games. To give you a comparison, because uh, I've been kind of waiting to to drop this, right? I've said that the Saturn and the PlayStation really crank stuff out. The 64 had around 400 games that released during its life cycle. The Saturn had around a thousand. The PlayStation had around seven thousand games. So many PlayStation games. It's incredible. And it's because the licensing was so easy. They'd basically just give anybody yeah. a license that wanted to develop for the console. But even with this massive ocean of games that came out, there were insanely popular games on the PlayStation. Final Fantasy, most of the JRPGs were there. I mean, Final Fantasy VII, right? Like, look at the ongoing legacy of that game. And it was going to be developed for a Nintendo console until they switched to cartridges. Dude, sneak peek and to so, a future episode. Kingsfield was on PlayStation, and Kingsfield was huge. Yeah? Yeah. For, from um, software. That's one of the most famous from software games. I guess I'd never put that together, huh? Yeah. Huh. Um, I read one at one part. Um, I don't have the article that I used here, but um, 
that there was talk that the reason that maybe the N64 didn't catch on in the Japanese market at such a high rate as it did in the U.S. was because the U.S. hadn't really had their introduction to JRPGs yet, and JRPGs mm -hmm. were going really strong in Japan. And so when you try to sell this console that doesn't really have JRPGs, you know, you lose that whole subsection of the market that wanted that. Um, but I want to put a cap on this whole Nintendo thing. <clears throat> I've been trying to think, like, how do I conceptualize the fact that Nintendo stuff still endures when a lot of PlayStation stuff doesn't in the same way? And uh, you've played Civilization, right? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you know how in Civilization, there's like a whole bunch of different ways you can win, right? There's a technological victory, there's a military victory, and there's a cultural victory yeah i feel like nintendo won the culture victory and you know an article i read spoke about like this and i'm paraphrasing but you know the nintendo 64's legacy is is surprisingly mixed like when you really look back at it it's a very mixed legacy it was kind of a commercial failure for them but its contribution to gaming history is disproportionate to the actual sales that it had yeah that's a good uh, did i did I tell you that I had one? No. Yeah, I had one. Um, you you obviously had one. You want to go first? You want to tell me about what you had for it or anything? Um, it was transparent. I had the transparent green one. Ooh. Yeah, because I bought it used from a friend. I, I Because I, my mom, bought me a PlayStation and then would go on to call everything that you play games on a PlayStation, no matter what it was. So sure. In my mom's mind, I got a green transparent PlayStation that used cartridges, I guess. And yeah. I had obviously Super Mario 64, which still is with me. It's the only game I still mm -hmm. have. And I had Turok which, and Mario Party and Mario Kart, I think. Oh, and Smash Brothers. Mm -hmm. That one I liked. And I think yeah. that's it. All the other I just borrowed from friends sometimes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty solid lineup of some stuff other than maybe yeah. Turok. Uh, so I, <laughs> I told my dad, he asked me what I wanted for Christmas the one year. And this is pretty late in the, um, uh, the console's life. Cause I think if I remember correctly, smash didn't come out until like late 99. It was like fall of 99. I'd have to look, but I told my dad, um, that year that I wanted, um, a Nintendo 64 and, uh, that I also wanted um, Super Smash Brothers. Or I'm trying to, maybe maybe I got the N64 from somewhere else, but I know specifically that he bought me Super Smash Brothers, okay? And uh, <laughs> he told me, he gave it to me like two months early. And he gave it to me and he said, don't open this until Christmas. And then he left. <laughs> so just sitting oh, on my... Of course you didn't open it, right? I legitimately, I swear to you, I did not play that game until Christmas Day. I was well enough behaved. I actually, at one point in time, I got so anxious of having this thing touted in my face that I opened the box and I read the manual. And then I felt bad that I had, I had broken the seal to the cartridge. And so I put it all back and I didn't touch it again. And I called my dad on Christmas day and I said, dad, thank you so much for this game. Oh, it's so fun. I'm finally getting to play it. And he's like, wait, you didn't open that. You seriously didn't open that. You've had it for like two months and you didn't open it. 
Like I full like I gave that to you. I was kidding. Like I fully expected you to be playing that at this point. And I was like, no, I didn't open it. I was good. <laughs> Do you know that there's this study on kids? Like you put a kid in a room and you put a <clears throat> yeah. piece of candy on the table. Yep. And you tell them you don't eat the candy. And you leave the room and every kid at some point will eat the candy, but it just takes different amounts of time. And you're mm-hmm. that one kid that doesn't. I was the one kid, yeah. Yeah, and actually, it, like they, they kind of try to correlate it with how well they will do in school later on. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm the kid that immediately eats the candy, even though <laughs> the parent is still in the room. That's funny. <laughs> that's I, funny. I would have immediately opened that game. I, I, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But no, I waited. So uh, I had Smash and... Um, uh, it's weird. Oh, I had Pokemon Snap. Oh my god, I was obsessed Ooh, with I Pokemon Snap. That. Oh my god, I was so fucking excited when the new one got released last year or earlier this year. I don't last year, whatever it was. Um, I fucking love Pokemon, Pokemon Snap. Oh my god, that's really cool. I don't mm, know. Yeah, it, that worked. Some Pokemon games were really shit, but this was good. I don't know. It's confusing. The new one's great. FYI, just I'm not trying to advertise. Stuff. But like the new Pokemon Snap is really fucking good. Um, cool. it, it's a little grindier than I wanted it to be, but it's good. Um, okay. So yeah, I had one. I had a few games for it. Uh, a lot of the games I got later, though, because I bought a bunch of old retro consoles off people in high school. I'd like slurp them up. And um, that's when I, it was. In, it wasn't until I was in high school that I got um, Pokemon Stadium. Oh. Uh, okay. So let's do our final wrap up. I've been waiting for a year to talk about this. <laughs> One fucking year and so and so much work. Oh my gosh. Okay. By sheer sales, the PlayStation is the winner of the fifth gen console war by far, with 102.49 million units sold. The Nintendo 64 sold 32.93 million. The Saturn, 9.26. The 3DO, around 2 million. The Jaguar, 250,000. Uh, there are also some lesser known consoles from this time period I did not touch on. I originally talked about doing an episode about them. I'm not going to, at least not now. So let's name drop them and we'll give them uh <clears throat> we'll talk about them just for a second. There was the PCFX. They sold about 400,000 consoles. They were developed by NEX and Hudson Soft. It released in 1994 and it was discontinued in 1998. It was about $500 and it looked like a computer tower. It only had a Japanese release. It released something like 60 plus games over the course of its life. I did not recognize any of them, but it was a Japanese only console. The Amiga CD32... It was released by Commodore only in certain countries. It was mostly a Europe thing, but it also released in Australia, Canada, and Brazil. It retailed for around $400, but Commodore had a number of major internal issues and they went bankrupt before its US release. They sold around 100,000 consoles. There was I mean, the. They, they gifted Peter Molyneux 10 Amigas because they confused him for a development <laughs> studio. I. I am not confused <laughs> that they had internal issues. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're looking for Taurus Interactive. That guy has Taurus on the sign. There's beans everywhere. I don't know. I don't judge. Take these 10 Amigas and shut the fuck up. Go make something, Peter. Make something of yourself. <laughs> this is just a reminder that if any of you have not listened to the Populous episode yet, go do it. It's like one of my favorites. <laughs> 
There was also the FM Towns Marty. Technically, it is the first fifth-gen console. It was developed by uh, Fujitsu. It was released in 1993. It was only released in the Japanese market. Apparently, it was very expensive. It retailed for around $710 in 1993 dollars. There was a version that you could install into a car. It sold 45,000 consoles. Last but not least is the Apple Pippin. It was developed by Apple. It used their Mac OS. It sold for $600. It had a very brief release between 1996 and 1997, and it sold 42,000 consoles. Apple Pippin, like Pippin in Lord of the Rings? Yes, like Pippin in Lord of the Rings. Maybe someday I will do some mini episodes on those, but... For now, I think it is time to finally close this chapter of the podcast. I am free. You are free. Freedom. Congratulations. The I freedom. Never thought, I never thought you'd do it, but you did it. I'm proud you of told you me I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, I will now I can look back. This N64 episode was I was convinced I wasn't gonna finish it. I like really had to buckle down in the last couple of weeks to just like force myself. Yeah. Thanks. This was there you go. a nice wrap-up. Cool. <sighs> now we can... Now I can unfree myself. Fourth-generation consoles. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the CDI. Technically, the CDI was a fourth-generation console. That's why I say that. Oh, boy, this was a long one. I figured it would be. Um, we said we wouldn't do massively long episodes, but here we are. That's fine. This was an last, it like a, it was the final of a set of episodes, so you're kind of gonna do that, right? Yeah, it's the season finale. Okay, well, thanks to everybody who continues to listen. Thanks to everyone who has listened up until this point. This massive tangled web of backstabbing, conniving developers and rich people. Um, this story is, at least this chapter of it, is over. And thanks for thanks for being along for the ride. Yeah, and let's be excited for the next episode because from now on we cannot predict what Tyler's gonna do as an episode. So that's gonna that's be exciting. true. He's gonna I mean, be granted, about as random as I am. So maybe <laughs> I have to do like episode. a set of episodes about I don't know a theme for a year. <laughs> yeah, just really, just really get into it. I mean, the Tamagotchi episode was out of left field and was mostly birthed of my frustration of this episode. Um, yeah. Sometimes you need a palate cleanser. Sometimes you need a palate cleanser about the, whatever the fuck the Tamagotchi was. <laughs> All right. That's it for us. Uh, thanks. Uh, stay safe out there. Um, you know, as always, the world is burning, but it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of good people to fix it. And you can be one of them. Yeah. Uh, stay safe and have a good day. Catch you later, friends. See ya. Bye. This is a part that Andre will cut right out. Dun, 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 dun. Andre, cut that out.